who want us to do more UFO shows. So hopefully the people who've been writing in asking for more UFO content will enjoy this week's episode. It is jam-packed with some amazing information that chances are many of you have never heard before. And the other reason why I'm excited is that this interview, this whole Swedish ufology episode, is the brainchild of one of the great BOA Audio listeners, Claus Hager, who wrote in, suggested we do a Swedish ufology episode, put me in touch with our guest this week, Claus Spahn, and really got the wheels rolling on this whole thing. So big thanks to Claus Hager. You've made an indelible mark here on Season 4, and I hope you really enjoy this episode for which you, sir, planted the seed. As noted, our guest is Claus Svahn, head of UFO Sweden, an amazing researcher in a country whose history of UFO events and UFO investigation is just breathtakingly rich. I could not believe the stuff I found out as I looked more and more into Swedish ufology, how long the UFO phenomenon has been a presence over there, and even more amazing, perhaps, how long people have been investigating the UFO phenomenon. And if that's not exciting enough, this is Claus's first ever American radio interview. So I am just thrilled to be introducing him to the BOA Audio listeners, not just in America, but around the world. In this lengthy conversation, goes over two hours. We're going to be discussing in amazing detail the world of Swedish ufology. Here's a little thumbnail look at what we're going to be talking about. In the first hour or so, we're going to be discussing some of the key UFO cases in Sweden's history, such as an 1808 mass UFO sighting, the 1933 phantom lights flap, the famous Josta Carlson case, which Klaus Hager wrote about in his original email to us, the ghost lights of 1946, the 1958 Domston close encounter case, the remarkable and thought-provoking Project Argus that was put together by the Swedish military in the 1970s, the 1984 Minsk case, a 1999 UFO crash, and many other noteworthy UFO events. In the latter half of the interview, we're going to touch on all of the pillars which we talk about when we bring in one of our global UFO guests. Claus is going to give us his first-hand perspective on the birth and evolution of UFO studies in Sweden. What were the early days of UFO Sweden like, and how has the organization changed over the years? Claus is going to tell us all about that. He's also going to enlighten us to the reaction of the Swedish military and government to UFOs. You're also going to find out about the media coverage of the UFO phenomenon in Sweden and how it's changed over the years. Plus, we'll try and get a grip on what the everyday Swedish citizen thinks of UFOs. All that, of course, and tons and tons more, 
showcasing the world of UFOs in Sweden, a country whose contributions to the history of the field of ufology have been all too often overlooked. They have been a major player in the global UFO enigma since it really began in the modern era. Their UFO events predate the Foo Fighter era, and they've been ongoing ever since. And we're going to be exploring this country's UFO history from top to bottom here with Klaus Spahn, an amazing researcher, and as I said, the head of UFO Sweden. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Klaus Svahn, allow me to provide a little background on him. Born and raised in Sweden, Klaus Svahn has been a journalist since 1978 and has been writing for Sweden's largest morning newspaper since 1990. Finding an interest in the UFO phenomenon during his teenage years, he formed a local UFO group in Mariestad, Sweden in 1974 and went on to become the chairman of UFO Sweden in 1991. He is the vice chairman of the Archives for UFO Research, and the co-editor of UFO Sweden's magazine, UFO Octult. He has authored or co-authored five books on the UFO phenomenon and contributed to many more esoteric tomes. He's tackled some of Sweden's most famous UFO cases, such as the Josta Carlson case and the Domston Close Encounter event. An amateur astronomer, Spawn brings a scientific approach to investigating UFOs, with the goal being to solve the mystery of a sighting rather than merely proclaim it to be a UFO. The English-language version of his website is www.ufo.se slash English, or just go to ufo.se and click the English button. And the archive for UFO research can be found at www.afu.info. Pretty simple, both those sites, ufo.se and afu.info. Either one of those will have a ton of information for you. A lot of it's in English, and I highly recommend you check it out. To find out even more information and background on all these different cases we're going to be discussing tonight, the UFO Sweden organization as a whole, and the amazing archive for UFO research, which we'll be discussing later on in the program. With all that said, let's rock and roll. This interview was recorded on May 28, 2009, Klaus Spahn, talking about the UFO phenomenon in Sweden, on BOA Audio, Season 4. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Banal of America Audio. I am supremely excited about this week's episode. Recent listeners to the program actually will have heard about the evolution of this episode because I read at the end of a recent edition of the program an email from Claus Hager talking about the history of cool and interesting UFO cases in Sweden, and he suggested we do a Swedish UFO episode. And then when I took my downtime here for spring break, I wanted to... Uh, track down someone over there in Sweden who could speak to the UFO phenomenon and their rich history. And through Claus's help, I got another Claus, different spelling, but it, <laughs> it's all good. Uh, he is Claus Svon. He is the head of UFO Sweden, which is an amazing organization. I was completely blown away when I looked into this, this group. They've been around since the 1970s. Claus has been chairman of the group since 1991, so he's no spring chicken to this UFO phenomenon. He's been looking at it since 1974, and the more I looked into UFO Sweden's information on their website, which you can find at ufo.se, I was just completely blown away by the amazingly rich history of UFO cases and ufology of Sweden. It's just an amazing story. You know, they're right there with America as far as interest by the people over there as to what's going on in the sky. So 
I'm very excited about this interview. I've been researching the world of Swedish ufology for uh, the last couple days to get ready for this conversation. So I think you're going to find this to be richly entertaining and fascinating as far as the sheer number of events and uh, noteworthy changes in history and stuff like that that you're going to find out about here for ufology in Sweden. So, Claus, welcome to the program. I understand this is your first American radio interview, so I'm very excited to make a little history here with you and to introduce you to our American listeners and hopefully uh, provide a cool interview for your Swedish friends and UFO researchers. Yeah, I'm very happy to be with you as well. Thanks a lot for inviting me. Let's start out first, you know, just bring people up to speed on who you are. Who is Claus Spawn? How did you get interested in the UFO phenomenon? How did you end up as the head of UFO Sweden? Well, I started uh, to get an interest uh, about UFOs in 1971, I think. I started reading uh, books about UFOs. I was only 13 years old, and then my parents uh, gave me at Christmas presents uh, books, only books all the time. And uh, most of them were about astronomy or space and the UFOs because that was the things I, I really I really was interested about. And I think it was very good that I started out as an amateur astronomer as well because that, uh, that makes me stand uh, on a firm ground now when I'm also working quite, <laughs> quite many hours a day with UFOs. Mm-hmm. Uh, I read articles in the newspapers, and uh, in 1974, I, I started a small uh, UFO group in Mariestad, a small town, 25,000 people only, in the middle of the south of Sweden. And I also joined uh, UFO Sweden in 1974. And um, since then, I've been investigating cases and uh, also educating other researchers. And in the 1990s, I got more and more involved and got... Uh, I've been chairman now since, as you said, in 1991, so it's uh, quite a few years. Yeah, yeah, and, and I really uh, I got to take my hat off to you guys over there at UFO Sweden because I was really impressed by your stance on the UFO phenomenon. I mean, you guys aren't running around screaming that these are aliens and that there's secret bases and that there's, you know, clandestine organizations and meetings and plans and deals with America and stuff like that. You guys are really grounded in the science and looking at these cases from a scientific bent, which I respect and appreciate. Yeah, we're trying to stand for a third way ufology, we call it. Uh, we, uh, we do not like the unjustified disbelief or, or blind faith concerning the phenomenon, but uh, we want um, a critical investigation of something that we consider a real phenomenon. Mm-hmm. So, so um, we, we don't say that we have the answer. We are looking for it. Absolutely, yeah. That's the attitude that everybody in ufology should have, but unfortunately, some people seem to think they have the answer when we know they don't. Yeah, I think they, miss, they, they, they are missing out opportunities if they are uh, locked into a particular, particular solution. That, that is the problem, really. We do not know really where all this will, will bring us in the end. But uh, as we walked away, we must be very, uh, we must be looking at either option option we have because uh, if we have the answer we do not put the right questions if we do not have the answer we can be much broader in the investigation we are making exactly exactly i'm really excited here well we'll get into the history of ufo sweden in a little bit when we talk about the uh the history of organized ufo studies over there but first i guess let's talk about sort of you know the history 
of UFO events over there in Sweden because it's just mind-blowing the more I looked into it. Uh, I was reading the archives of your newsletter. People should definitely check out UFO Sweden's website. They have an English version, so folks who are listening to this interview can definitely read some of the stuff they have there. And the more I read your archive, it seemed like case after case would come up and be a little bit earlier than the last one I had read about and a little bit earlier, and it was just amazing that the history of UFO events goes back so far over there in Sweden. The first case I want to talk to you about was one that I was just stunned to see talked about in the newsletter from 1808. And uh, I'm going to do my best to pronounce the name of this uh, location here in Sweden, Biskopsberga. Yeah, Biskopsberga. <laughs> well, that, was, that wasn't that close, but okay. Oh, well, that's good, I think. <laughs> there was this mass sighting over there, and that's over 200 years ago. So, I mean, that's just uh, just amazing. So, I guess talk a little bit about that. I guess that's the first, you know, sort of quasi-official UFO case of Sweden that we know about. Yes, I think it's uh, the very first, at least, uh, well-documented case. We have found traces of other cases, but this is very well-documented, and uh, as you said, there were many people that were out in, in the field and uh, in the middle of the day when they suddenly saw um, hundreds, millions, they say, really, globes coming, uh, sailing in front of the sun. And when they came in front of the sun, the sun blackened out and it was uh, darker than it should be in the middle of the day. And those globes, they were coming down and they were hitting the ground in front of all those maybe 100 persons out in the fields. And they were, they were melting like soap bubbles on the ground. Uh, but they, they changed shape as well. Uh, when they were sailing uh, from, from west to east, they turned from being spherical to uh, cigar-shaped objects. Weird. This continued for, for minutes and minutes and minutes, and, uh, and suddenly it was all over. And uh, it's just in, in, in this old... Um, investigation that was made by, by uh, the Swedish uh, Academy of Science, that it was millions of globes. And now I, I have researched this case quite uh, thoroughly, and I tried to look into similar cases around the world, and I never found any. So this is a very singular event, a very strange event, and uh, we really don't know what to make of it, even today. Yeah, it does sound really strange. Now, have you sort of I'm trying to come up with a prosaic answer for this, but I can't really come up with anything other than a hailstorm or something. But, you know, they would know a hailstorm, so it's not like they wouldn't, you know, I mean, this is something that was yeah, completely it, out of the ordinary. This was not hard. It was so bubble-like. So, I mean, it was something very thin, but opaque. Uh, so it was, they were dark against the sun. And they were sailing through the skies, and not falling downwards. They were merely landing on the fields after a while. Wow. I don't know, really. It's very, very strange. Interesting. Yeah, that is a really weird one. And then the next big one that I noticed here uh, actually came from my good friend Keith Chester's book, Strange Company. It's all about the Foo Fighters during World War II. Before he gets into the discussion on the Foo Fighters, he talks about the 1933 Mystery Lights flap that happened over there in Sweden. So talk a little bit about that, because that, you know, a lot of people talk about ufology sort of starting, you know, here in America with the Kenneth Arnold thing, and they always sort of forget about the Foo Fighter era, and then when you even look closer at it, you know, we're seeing here the 33 mystery lights really sort of kicked off the whole Foo Fighter thing, so, I mean, Sweden was right at the cutting edge of, of UFOs, 
you know, right there with America. Yeah, we had two great UFO waves in the 1930s, the 33 and the 36, 37 wave. We call it Ghost Flyer. It was, as you say, it was mostly lights in the sky, but it was called the Ghost Flyer wave here in Sweden. And uh, people saw, uh, like in the... Like in the United States, 1896-97, when people were standing on the rooftops in San Francisco and other cities looking for those strange lights coming in, mm-hmm. they thought it was um, uh, some sort of uh, well, suspended balloons or, uh, well, they didn't really know what that was either. But uh, in 1930s, most uh, people in Sweden thought they were aircraft, uh, but there were no sounds from any motor in many cases. They were just very, very strange and very, very bright lights going over the skies. And uh, I spoke to one of the military enlisted men who was uh, up in the mountain in 1936-37, standing with uh, his uh, rifle looking for those ghost flyers. And as soon as he, he spotted one, he was to call the attention of the other fellows who were sitting beneath uh, maybe 50 meters beneath him, and they all should be running up the hill and, and try to fire on the ghost flyer. Uh, they never got to that. <laughs> they, they heard a sound one night, but they never saw it. But uh, hundreds of people did see it, and it landed, uh, in, in several cases, it landed on on uh, ice, on, uh, on uh, lakes in Sweden and uh, in Norway, and also in Finland. Now we think that most of those observations were uh, military aircraft, spy aircraft from Germany that were, uh, that were sent away from, from ships outside uh, Norway. But if you uh, take into account uh, uh, also observations in the south of Sweden, they were much more UFO-like. Uh, but no crafts. They were never, never saw any flying saucers also, but uh, very, very strange lights. Yeah, yeah. Now, you guys were sort of right there in the thick of it as far as the Foo Fighter thing goes, and I'm sure you have a you know a more informed perspective on it than even we may have here in the United States, because most of our reports are sort of based on, you know, U.S. pilots and stuff during the war who saw it, and some testimony from Germans and stuff like that, but, you know, you guys are right there sort of in the thick of it. So what's your take on the whole Foo Fighter phenomenon from the Second World War? Yeah, that's uh, really an enigma. I mean, I, I read lots of letters and reports from uh, Royal Air Force pilots who met that those Foo Fighters over Germany, mainly. And um, in one case, they even collided with uh, small discus-shaped, disc-shaped objects that they could hear the objects slamming into the aircraft. But uh, they never did any, any harm to the aircraft, even though you heard it colliding with the aircraft. I also read a letter from one uh, Spitfire pilot who who met one of those strange Foo Fighters when he was climbing up into a, a cloud. And um, this Foo Fighter came the opposite way and uh, was going down the other way. <laughs> uh, so uh, I don't know what to make of it, really. It's very, very strange. Uh, they never really saw any large crafts, but uh, those small disc-shaped objects I mentioned before yeah. was uh, one of the few, you could say, was not just light, but something material. Uh, so 99% of the Foo Fighters were, were lights in the sky, but they were following the aircraft, and uh, the aircrew tried to uh, outmaneuver them, and they couldn't. They, they were stuck behind the aircraft. I don't know what to make of it. It's really a real UFO phenomenon. 
Absolutely. And one of the forgotten aspects of the UFO phenomenon, I think. Although, thankfully, now people are starting to take a second look at the Foo Fighters, so that's a good thing. Now, it sounds like 1946 was quite a year over there in Sweden for UFO events. And, and the one I want to talk to you about, which is the big one, I think it might be the biggest case, you know, in Swedish UFO history. But you'll be able to correct me if I'm wrong. And that's the Gosta Carlson case, which is uh, actually what Claus Hager wrote to me about in the first place, you know, telling me about the amazing history of UFO stories over there in Sweden. And I know you've written the book or a book with Gosta Carlson on the case. So I'm sure you know all about this famous case. And I was blown away when I read about it. Just amazing stuff here. Swedish hockey player, I presume that he was pretty well known, said he got some recipes from whoever, you know, was behind the craft, ended up starting some pharmaceutical companies via the recipes, and he said he found two strange artifacts there, a rod and a ring. So, I mean, there's a lot of amazing details to this story. So let's dive into the Ghost of Carlson case. Yeah, 1946 was a tremendous year in Sweden, according to UFOs, because it was the ghost rocket wave as well, and that we will come back to, I I presume, because that is probably one one of the... uh, biggest waves of UFO observations in the entire world uh, in a very mm-hmm. limited time frame. Yeah. But uh, during during this uh, ghost rocket wave, there was one observation that sticks out. Uh, it was not reported then. It was reported uh, many, many years later in 1971. Mr. Carlson uh, went public with, with his uh, experience. But his story is that he was walking outside Engelholm, which is a small city in the southwest of Sweden. In the middle of the night, uh, very late May 18th, 1946, and uh, he suddenly saw a strange light uh, somewhere inside the woods. And, um, well, he, he was walking there. He wasn't afraid. He was just curious. So he, he went through the woods and came into a clearing. And when he came into the clearing, he saw craft, uh, a classical flying saucer, really, standing there. And uh, uh, from the top of it, lights were streaming around it like it, uh, it was a circus tent, but uh, completely see-through. Mm-hmm. And uh, you could see people working, uh, mending something. They were repairing something on this craft. Uh, three or four persons were, were climbing the craft, and several other persons were moving around around it and one uh, one sentinel came approached Justa and stopped him and when he did that he pointed some sort of device uh, some sort of uh, camera to uh, right uh, to Justa and he, he thought he felt something strange just in that in that uh, moment but um, he couldn't approach because he was stopped there so he went around back to the the path and went down to the sea, which is just a couple of hundred meters away, and thought I sh- uh, he was trying to sneak up behind <laughs> to get, the, get the better look because uh, he was very curious. He wasn't afraid. Oh yeah. <clears throat> but when he was sneaking up behind, suddenly the craft uh, was uh, was lifting. It was uh, going straight up in the air. Uh, the lights were out, and uh, it uh, it flew away uh, over Engelholm and disappeared. And the next day, when he came back to this clearing, he saw the traces. He saw round traces in the in the grass, uh, burnt, and uh, also found, as you said, this stuff and, and uh, 
and this ring, this rod and the ring, and a couple of, uh, of uh, mugs uh, with uh, liquid that uh, they have been drinking out of. So this is the start of the story. It's a very, very complicated story. This is just the beginning of it. And I, I investigated this for eight years. Wow. And uh, spent a lot of time in Engelholm. <clears throat> I interviewed about 50 persons uh, around Gösta Karlsson. I made several hundreds of hours of interviews with Gösta himself. And uh, the place of this happening is now a concrete monument depicting this uh, craft. So this is one of the uh, the most uh, most tourists go to see in Engelholm. They go to this uh, clearing to take a look at this flying saucer in concrete standing there. Yeah, yeah. I was looking into that uh, monument that you have there, and it's it's only the second or there's only two shrines like that in Europe. So I mean, it's quite a cool landmark to have over there in Sweden. Yeah, yeah, it's quite cool. And uh, I mean, this this case is not very easily understood. And uh, I have my doubts. Uh, I, I know that Justa Carlson did have a very, uh, very vivid imagination. He, he always, when I met him, he had very big problems to distinguish between what he has read and what he has uh, he had experienced himself. Uh, he was not, uh, he has no empathy. He couldn't feel empathy for other people. Uh, and that is something I found in other uh, close encounter witnesses as well. Uh, and he had dreams afterwards when he was taken aboard this ship and met with the commander. Uh, and he also, I mean, I, I have held the, the ring and, and the rod in my hand, but I've never been able to get Justa to, to let me analyze them. Oh, and now wow. Justa is gone. The objects are... are are gone now, and nobody really knows where they are, but we suspect that uh, his daughter took them with her to Switzerland, where she lives, after he died uh, a couple of years ago. And uh, the story is, uh, is not really finished until we have gotten the opportunity to analyze at least uh, the rod, because just always claimed that the rod was made of something that was not of this world. And he also, cl also claimed that he did uh, analyze it uh, through a company in Switzerland, but he never showed me any any paperwork <laughs> on that. So Interesting. Now, that that is a problem. Now you but say we put them on display in 1996, but it was 50 years ago. We put them on display in Engelholm, and we had our annual conference there. Oh wow! And it was uh, way over a thousand people coming to take a look at them. So it was a very great interest. Oh wow! I'm gonna have to look, uh, see if I can find some pictures of those. Now you say you held them in your hands. What was the impression that you got from looking at these items? The ring looked quite ordinary. I think it was not uh, very strange. The the rod is uh, like a quartz crystal and um, with the signs written on it, like Nordic runes. Uh, they are not very well done, really. I think. Uh, it's not the work of an alien civilization, if you say. Uh, I have my doubts about the objects, really. Okay. I do have. Now, I'm not sure where I got this part of the story from, but the whole thing about him getting recipes and starting pharmaceutical companies, is that true, or did I get yeah, bad information? Yeah, that's true. That's true. He claimed that he got uh, recipes and also uh, some other things that could make him start uh, his company. He said it was from, from the leader. When he was taken aboard the ship in his dream, uh, the leader uh, let him know things that he could use coming back to Earth again. Uh, but his brother, I've spoken lengthy with his mother, brother, and uh, his brother says that he was the man really who, 
who was behind most of those uh, <laughs> inventions. So we really don't know that either. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a that's a good claim to fame, I guess, if you're starting a pharmaceutical company. If if, if, if as long as the <laughs> as long as the cures work, uh, you know, saying you got them from aliens might be an extra marketing <laughs> tool. To, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's been during the years as well, and it's uh, the 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 company is sold now. But it's still a million, a million dollar company, really. So uh, wow. it's still there, still in business. Now, would you say that's probably like the most famous case, because just how interesting it is? Yeah, yeah, it's the most uh, well-known case in Sweden, I should say. It is. But nobody had bothered to investigate it before I started in the, the 1980s. So when I I, re I wrote the book together with Justa. It's a highly critical book in some parts, but uh, it was okay for Josta. He said, uh, fine with me. So it was very easy to work with him. Uh, we had a difference in opinions, but he was never problematic to work with. Interesting. And they say it's highly critical. So what do you, you know, at the end of the day, what do you think really happened there? Is this just a tall tale, or is this something that, you know, maybe he confabulated from just a run-of-the-mill UFO sighting? Well, I think it's mostly well, the story comes from from inside, just a Carlson's own, own mind, really. The objects, uh, he could have made them himself. He was a skilled uh, uh, diamond uh, driller. He, he could make uh, things, uh, artworks by himself. He was good at that. Interesting. Uh, so I'm, it's a highly dubious story, but it cannot be, be, be explained until we have done this real good analysis ourselves, really. Absolutely. We wait for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, have you tried to get the objects from his daughter? Or, I mean, or is it still sort of? You say you don't really even know for sure if that's where they're at. But I mean, you know, what, is there a search ongoing for these things? It is still a search going on. I, I, I call her, I write to her, but she never answers my calls and never answers my letters. So, <laughs> and uh, I was very good friend with Justin Carlson. We uh, were very, very good friends, and. Uh, I even answered his mails for many years uh, because he got quite a lot of letters from people. And uh, but his daughter, uh, I think she she understands that uh, her father's legacy is at stake if uh, something turns up that shows that these objects are not what he claimed them to be. Yeah, that's true. Now, did he end up, you know, becoming sort of like a national name because of what happened? Yeah, wow. you can say that. And the hockey team, he he helped. Uh, took to uh, get up in the highest division in Sweden. Uh, it's still up in the highest division. I was in a couple of years back, and every time there's a newspaper article about the hockey team, they always mention Justa Carlson and his story. Wow, that's just amazing. Now, I know you wrote the book on this with Gusta. Is this available in English at all, or is this just a Swedish book? No, I'm sorry to say it was only printed in 3,000 copies in Swedish, 320 pages only about this case. It's one of the most thorough investigations I, I know of about the Contact T case ever done. But it's only in Swedish, sorry to say. That's okay. Maybe we can work some kind of magic here with some folks here in America and get that book over here to America. Cause... It's a very, very good story. I mean, it's a oh, very, yeah. very good read. It sounds fascinating, and uh, I'm, I'm very intrigued by it. Uh, definitely sounds like there's a lot more going on there than than meets the eye. Now, this went on at the same time as the ghost lights situation over there in Sweden. So, tie these things together. What was this ghost lights phenomenon? Yeah, ghost rockets, really. Ghost yeah. rockets, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was uh, the year after the Second World War ended, and uh, 
You know about the V-bombs uh, that uh, Hitler turned against, uh, especially against London, mm -hmm. the V-1 and the V-2, the the last resort of uh, the German warfare in the end. What uh, happened in 1946 was that people started to see things that really looked like those V-bombs flying over Sweden. And at that time, there was no one, no one shooting things like that. There was no, nothing like that in the air. But there were 1,200 observations were made during uh, six months in 1946. And uh, in one case, a Swedish pilot uh, chased one of these ghost rockets, but uh, he was outflown by it in, the, in broad daylight. I've spoken to this pilot, and, uh, and uh, all this uh, is very well documented. We found the documents in the war archives of Sweden in 1986, and it's thousands and thousands of, uh, of papers, uh, of uh, official investigations. And the, the most interesting thing about the ghost rockets are they started to fall down in Sweden in the, the summer of 1946. Uh, they crashed into lakes. And uh, at one particular date, it was July the 19th, 1946, four ghost rockets crashed into four different lakes wow. in, uh, in four hours. And uh, the military were there, they were looking for them. <clears throat> they were building a raft, uh, taking 35,000 uh, samples from, from the seafloor. They only found uh, something, that something had crashed, uh, but they didn't find any, any material. Any, it should be, of course, uh, something left behind a crash like that, but they never found anything. And I've interviewed all the people who were on, on the, the site were out on the raft and the people around the lakes and uh, very, very strong cases, no doubt it happened. Would it even be possible for them to, you know, recover an object and somehow keep it quiet all these years or do you think that that's not, not possible or likely? No, it's not possible because um, there were people living all around uh, the main lake where the, the main crash occurred and uh, they couldn't have brought something up and taken it away be before their eyes. And I also in, interviewed the, the main investigator of, of uh, the military investigator, mm -hmm. and he also gave me pictures from from the search. He was baffled. He said, "We really didn't find anything." I mean, uh, I spoke to him well, well over 40 years afterwards, so he had nothing to hide anymore. So whatever it was, it, it crashed and it uh, disintegrated. And I just talked to one of the witnesses again now, just uh, two weeks ago. Try to keep uh, keep in touch with them. Yeah. Uh, most of them are gone now. Most of them are dead, of course. But there are a few left. So I, I give them a call now and then. If you if you read the reports from from the military search, you can see that they were suspecting the Russians all the time. They thought it was some some uh, military branch in Russia that was sending those rockets over Sweden. But if that was the case, they should have found something. Should have found. Uh, at least uh, uh, some small metal fragment. I mean, in 1944-45, several of the Hitler's V-bombs crashed in Sweden, and there was tremendous, uh, uh, it was a crash, and it was, uh, uh, it was very easy to find it. I mean, it was debris all over, and uh, all those uh, debris, debris were sent to England. Uh, but you couldn't do that. You couldn't find anything like that yeah. in 1946.
And, uh, and United States and uh, Great Britain were informed about those ghost rockets. You can see that when you look through the, the archives in Washington and in London. And in London, they had uh, four or five persons on standby at Heathrow, military radar experts, stay uh, on standby going to Sweden if the Swedish prime minister had given the clearance to do that because they would like they would uh, have liked to come over and help the Swedish military to solve the ghost rocket enigma but they they didn't get the okay from the prime minister he said no so they uh, they were never sent away wow and just goes to show you that Sweden really has had sort of an unsung role you know in the history of even american ufo studies and and you know they were right there at the beginning of this whole thing as it started out and a lot of people don't don't even realize that yeah now, if I leave any out, feel free to sort of jump in and let me know, you know, that there's one that I missed here in the chronology. But one of the cases I want to ask you about is uh, what your newsletter called the best UFO picture from Sweden, and that's the Mora picture from 1952. Talk a little bit about that and what makes it the best UFO picture and, and you know, what you think it is and, and the, the story behind the case. Yeah, since that picture was published in our newsletter, we think we have found a solution of it. So it's not the best picture anymore. <laughs> but it's, uh, it's that way with many cases. We, we try to look into them again and again and again. If we do not find a solution, we do not think it must be a UFO. I mean, it, it, it mustn't be something strange. If we look at them again and again, and uh, this Mora picture is taken in the middle of the night by a man, his name is Niels Frost. He was walking uh, with his bicycle beside him, he was walking home from uh, meeting his girlfriend, when he saw suddenly behind the clouds a very, very strange, he thought, the bright light and a smaller light to the left of it. So he went home and, uh, and uh, got the camera and uh, went back out in the field and snapped this picture. And you can see the tree line uh, at the very bottom of the picture. And you can see this very bright light and this smaller light. When I investigated this again now, a couple of years back, I'm, I'm quite positive that uh, it really shows uh, just the moon and the planet Jupiter. Uh, and he was uh, he has given the wrong date, we think. It may be just one, one day wrong. Uh, because uh, that day uh, the planet and the moon were exactly in that position huh. and it matches uh, the picture exactly so there may be that problem and it shows again that you must be very early on an investigation you must be there when it happens you must uh, you must get the facts uh, the very first facts correctly from the beginning if you don't do that all the other whatever you do is jeopardized by, by this flaw. So we try to be early on now, early on when something happens. Get yeah. a call to the observers as fast as we can. As an astronomer, you probably know pretty well too that uh, you know with this advancement in computers and stuff, now you can sort of find out where the stars and everything else were way back when these some of these cases happened that maybe previously... Yeah, you're perfectly right. That was the way I did it uh, with, with this uh, Mura case. Uh, when I got a decent uh, program in my computer, I, I could I could take a, a closer look at how the sky or the heavens really looked like over Mura in uh, 1952. And uh, that was really what made me uh, think that we have solved the case now. Yeah, so as we develop more advancements like that, it's good that you're taking a second look at some of these cases. I, I hope somebody in America is doing the same with some of our classic cases because 
that sort of stuff, you know, we may be able to solve some of these things. Like you said, if uh, maybe the guy had the day wrong, and once you punch the right date in, it all makes sense. So, hmm. I mean, if we don't solve the case, we don't see it as a UFO. We see it as a failure, really, because if we don't know what it is, we have not done our homework. Because uh, there are always other things to consider, always other people to interview. There may be radar pictures, there may be other things that you really should take a look at. And if you do not have all those uh, jigsaws, it uh, makes the investigation stop maybe halfway. And some people are just satisfied with that. They are just satisfied to make an interview with a witness and say, wow, that was a UFO. But that is just the beginning of an investigation. That's why I'm so impressed with your organization and, and, and the way you guys are doing things over there. I mean, it's such a breath of fresh air when you contrast that with the way some other UFO investigations are handled. So uh, uh, my hat's off to you. I give you guys huge props for that. Yeah, m many people cannot see that we are uh, ufologists. They think uh, as, as uh, skeptics because we, we, are, <laughs> we are turning the stone another way around all the time. But we are not skeptics, and uh, we really think there is something worth investigating. There is a, a, a phenomena. There are several, several phenomena, uh, I think. Yeah. But uh, for many people, it's hard to realize that you can be into UFOs without saying it must be ET all the time. Absolutely. That's a very, very big step for many persons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a very uh, sticky issue, even here in America, and it's been going on for uh, decades, the debate about that. So, mm. And uh, you and I fall on the same line of thinking here, so I don't think you're a skeptic at all. I think that you're, you're doing the right thing, and you're doing the smart way of researching this, and it's better to uh, you know, do the thorough research than, like you said, half – half investigate a case and then run to the media and say it's an alien. So I'd rather I'd rather have it have it done the right way. Yeah, I can I can mention a case that I was looking into a couple of years back, two people up in the north of Sweden they were seeing a very strange object. It was glowing and it was uh, making a sound from itself. It was coming towards them and circling a, a small lake. So and it flew away. Uh, and I took a look at the radar pictures. I got hand of, of the raw radar pictures, and you can see the object circling the lake on the radar pictures. But you can, could never see where it come from, where it came from, or where it went away. But uh, I could at least confirm that this was something real, yeah. and uh, we could never find the solution of it. We tried to see if it was a helicopter uh, out with a very bright light on it, but uh, we could not find that helicopter. Weird. Now, how, that was recently, you say? Yeah, I mean, it was a couple of years back now, but in, in, uh, in the late uh, 1990s. Yeah. Wow. And then, uh, just to sort of stay where we're at chronologically, another case popped out to me, and I wish I had put more information here in my own notes, but it's the Domston case from 1958, a Swedish close encounter. Let's talk about the Domston case. I'm sure it stood out to me for a reason that I wish I had <laughs> made a better note of here in my notes, but uh, what was going on over there in 1958 with the Domston case and this Swedish close encounter? Well, it's, uh, it's quite a well-known case even in the United States because uh, April Bulletin published it uh, a couple of years after. Uh, so it was published in English quite early. Mm -hmm. And it's still published as an unknown case uh, from now and then. You can see it in catalogs and, and so. 
but me and uh, Anders Lillegren at the Archive for UFO Research here in Sweden, we looked into that case. We spent one year uh, free time <clears throat> trying to go to the bottom of that because it was a very, it's a very strange story. Two guys were out uh, in the middle of the night uh, dating a couple of girlfriends, and I let them off, and they were driving home. Well, they suddenly saw something just beside the road. Uh, it's like a small classic flying saucer standing there, and outside it was some sort of beings. They had no form. They could really not describe, no arms, no legs, just just things. Uh, one of the guys went out and uh, got in combat with <laughs> with one of those beings and were nearly dragged aboard this oh, flying saucer. Uh, this friend started to uh, to honk the horn on the car and and he was released. And he could run. He ran away from from those beings and they ran into this saucer and it lifted and flew away. <laughs> and uh, this case got uh, very good international media and. And the Swedish uh, CID at, uh, at in Engelholm, outside Engelholm, where, where this happened, uh, they took those two guys into uh, into a room and, uh, and locked the door and put a tape recorder conceal, and concealed microphone uh, to see if they were to to tell yeah. uh, without knowing, but they didn't. They were also the first ever in the world putting under hypnosis. Uh, by a, a doctor wow. trying to see if they could remember what had happened. And uh, they told the same story during hypnosis that they had done this. And uh, Well, the, it turned out later on that they had tricked uh, the doctor and they kept themselves awake. They were never under hypnosis. They have uh, managed to, to keep awake. Huh. Uh, so they tricked them. And they also tricked the military was also into this case and the CID. Uh, so we could prove beyond reasonable doubt that uh, the story was made up by them. We could even pinpoint the exact uh, source they had used to, to make up the story from. Wow. Uh, so, but it took a year to do that. It took lots of interviews. We traveled to Engelholm many, many times. We did into archives. We interviewed uh, 40 or 50 persons around those those uh, young guys. They were, they were dead by then when we did this as well. So we tracked them, we tracked where they had lived. We spoke to everyone who knew them, uh, and uh, at last yeah. we published this. this is and one person came through and said, "You are all right. This is right. They were just making this up. I was into it as well." Wow, this is amazing. I'm completely blown away right now by this. Now, what was the reaction like when you published this stuff? Because it sounds like this might be one of the more cherished cases over there in Sweden. I, it's, it, you know, you earlier intimated that, you know, that some people think you're skeptics and stuff. I'm mm. sure there must have been quite, quite a reaction. Yeah, sure, to it this. was. I mean, many people think, thought that we had taken away something from them. I mean, this was one of the pillars when I grew up. The Dunstein case and the Ysta Carlson case and some other cases were the real pillars of Swedish ufology. So that was the reason we started to look into the, those cases as well. Yeah. We really wanted to know what really was behind them. So we never went out to, to discredit it or to, um, to, to uh, debunk it. We were trying to find the facts, really, and the facts pointed us in a, another direction that we had 
expected from the beginning. Wow, I'm I'm just uh, stunned. I'm stunned. I'm I'm just blown away. That's amazing stuff. Uh, the next case that I noted here was 1965. Eric Einmark takes some uh, what you call four extravagant pictures of a potential UFO, and I believe that uh, you looked into this one and there wasn't much to it after all, but uh, I'm not positive if that's the right case I was talking about. So uh, talk a little bit about the Eric Einmark case. Yeah, it's an interesting case because uh, uh, Major Aho came from the United States to Sweden to give lectures. And he was very much into uh, the flying saucer interpretation of UFOs. And he was, uh, he was lecturing in Stockholm. And uh, one of the persons who did attend these lectures uh, was the, the would-be, the, the later uh, UFO contactee, Stin Lindgren, a very famous Swedish contactee. Mm -hmm. And um, the very night, the very night that Aho uh, made his uh, speech, uh, he, he said uh, something that, uh, well, there could be UFO sightings over, over your country because it usually are when I am visiting a country. <laughs> and, uh, well, it was. <laughs> the very night there was uh, this very, very bright, uh, elongated object coming in from the south of Sweden, going over the east of Sweden and uh, disappearing to, to the east, to, uh, well, to Finland, mm -hmm. you can say. And uh, Erik Enmark was able to take a series of pictures of this. And it was published all over. Yeah, I think it was, must have been 1,000 observers all around Sweden. It was even filmed, but the films are now vanished, I'm sorry to say. But um, uh, it was in the, all the newspapers. Uh, very, very, very uh, exciting reports. People didn't understand what they were seeing. I think it was on October 29th or something like that. Interesting. So we started to look into this a uh, long time afterwards, and we did find that uh, there was uh, astronomers uh, and, uh, and space scientists uh, in Switzerland and in other countries uh, in Europe waiting for this to happen this very night. Uh, they were out with their cameras and their uh, uh, observation uh, telescopes and all things they had waiting for this because they knew what it was. It was a rocket stage coming in, burning up in the atmosphere, going in over Switzerland, going in over Germany, Denmark, over Sweden, at this exact this time. Wow. So this was not known at the time. It was not published at the time. So nobody in Sweden knew what it was. Huh. And then uh, one really fascinating part I found in your archives there of the newsletters was this Project Argus from the 1970s, because that's something with some real meat on the bone that we know uh, was, you know, something intriguing that uh, that did exist. And uh, you talked to one of the pilots in, in Project Argus, and, and uh, it sounds like it was a, I don't want to say a UFO investigation, but it was some kind of quasi-investigation into what was crossing over the borders between Norway and Sweden. So I guess talk a little bit about Project Argus, because it does, it does sound pretty... Uh, unique and interesting as far as this phenomenon goes. Mm, it is. Project Argus, and uh, it was later followed up by Project uh, Dacapo. They're involved the military and, uh, and the police and the customs from Sweden and uh, from Norway. And uh, it started because uh, quite a few reports came from the border from uh, reliable people seeing 
strange objects, sometimes cigars, sometimes strange aircraft flying over the border. Uh, and this, uh, these aircraft flow in very bad weather. It could be in the middle of the night without lights on the crafts. They seem to sometimes be landing in the woods uh, on small, uh, small uh, strips of, <laughs> of land. They have built landing strips, really, from roads. Huh. Uh, so the military and, and uh, the CID in, uh, in Karlstad, uh, they set out to investigate this. And they, they put two secret radar units with a very top-notch radar out in this, uh, this area, very near the Norwegian border. And uh, they could get a call from Norway, from their counterparts in Norway, saying that now we see an object going uh, eastwards. Yeah. And then they started to, to look for it. And many times they got it on radar, and sometimes they sent up aircraft to try to follow it. And they also had the people all around the border that were out looking every night and listening if, if they could find something. Uh, this was a very huge operation. It was it was clearly secret, uh, and this, they went up to Stockholm to report. So I spoke to the head investigator, Inge Stolbom, who was the head of the criminal uh, department mm -hmm. in in uh, Karlstad, and he said he went to Stockholm uh, to the highest sources there to give their report, and then they went back, and they were thinking now we are going to pursue this, of course. And suddenly it was almost shut down. They got ordered to not to investigate it anymore. Oh, wow. And he, to this day, doesn't know why. And um, all the files are now stored somewhere that uh, we have not been able to find. But we are, we are on the track there. We, we really want to find them. Because it's a, mix, it's a mix of aircraft, very strange aircraft, and cigar-shaped objects crossing the border. Interesting. Yeah, that is. Uh, well, I hope you find those files because it sounds like there's like uh, you know a whole books worth of material right there. Uh, yeah, it is. And we, you know, we we sent 12 investigators from Europe to Sweden, and uh, I was uh, heading them for 10 days, uh, interviewing people in this area. So we interviewed 1,000 persons. Wow. And uh, we found, of course, a lot of interesting other UFO cases but also quite a few cases uh, with uh, uh, direct, uh, directly connected to the projects. So we have documented that. We taped everything, we took pictures, we filled out the forms. This is a very, very, very good material now. Uh, and the good thing is that the head investigator, the, the Inge Stolwom, the, the criminal the head of the criminal department, he told us for the first time the full story. So he didn't go to the press, but he went to Europe for Sweden because he trusted us. He knew that we were doing good work. So we had him having on tape uh, three hours interview where he's telling us everything he knew. Wow. Now, is he of the opinion that this was some kind of UFO thing, or, or does he still, you know, he's, is he undecided? Well, he's quite undecided. He don't really know what all of those things were. Uh, the, the thing uh, that they, they, they published after many years, uh, some of their findings said this was, must have been something with the customs. There were narcotics being flown into Sweden, but nobody believes that, and, uh, and Inge Stolwom doesn't believe that. There was too, too a massive operation for that. Sweden is not a very large country. It would have been so much, too much uh, narcotics for, for uh, explaining all those flights.
sites. Yeah. Wow. Now you said it turned into a different project down the line. Was that just like within a few years, or was that something that? Yeah, in a few, just two years. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Now that was in the 1970s. Now I know here in mm -hmm. America. Uh, we had a big explosion in abduction reports in the 1970s. Uh, did Sweden get hit with any sort of abduction wave? Not really. We have not had uh, the same wave as you have. We have, of course, the singular cases, but uh, very, very few, I should say. Very, very few. Hmm. Nothing to be compared with uh, what you have in America. I met with Whitley Strieber in 1989 in Stockholm, and uh, when his book was published uh, in Swedish, yeah. Uh, communion into Swedish. Uh, after that, we got some reports, but not the wave. But it seemed like the book triggered some, some reports. Yeah. Now, the next case I want to ask you about, 1980, it's a cigar-shaped uh, UFO case. And uh, you were recently quoted talking about it, and, uh, about a UFO going into a lake or something along those lines. You were, it sounded like you were particularly excited about the case, so... Uh, hopefully you know which one I'm talking about here from 1980. Yeah. What's that? Yeah, one that is a very interesting case. I mean, I'm, I'm very interested in, in cigar-shaped objects going down into lakes because we have so many reports from Sweden, uh, and I do not understand them. There is something really weird going on there. And in 1980, as you said, in I think it was July 30, uh, 31st of July, uh, a man and his wife were walking up in Namajaure, which is the very north of Sweden. It's a national park. They were alone there. There was no one else in, uh, in miles and miles. It was in uh, 11 o'clock sometimes, clear day, sun was shining. They suddenly heard a noise from the heavens and looked up, and uh, they saw this uh, elongated object with small uh, protrusions on the side coming flying towards them over them and they turned around and they saw the object going down uh, it was turning landing and sinking on the lake huh. in front of them uh, bubbles coming up and then it was gone so they reported this when they came back to civilization a couple of days <laughs> after that and the military were very interested and i spoke to the persons who had got their calls uh, afterwards and uh, but they never they never got to to dive or to look for it. So it's still down there. It's still uh, <laughs> lying at the bottom of Namajaure, which is a very, it's not very deep, but the bottom is uh, very swampy, like two meters uh, of, of clay. Oh, God. So it must have sunk down there now. Has there been any sort of like independent look for it by, you know, your group or other groups or anybody, you know, on the hunt for it? No, no nobody has done it. It's very remote and it's uh, quite uh, quite an operation. To get there with equipment yeah so so nothing has been done really i spoke to the guy that had witness uh, just a couple of days back and he's one very prominent uh, person at the swedish war archives and he has a very very good reputation and he still clings to the story and uh, he also wants to go there uh, <laughs> to take a look again so hopefully in the future when we get some money uh, we will go there and, uh, and try to find out what really is on the bottom of Namajaure. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm really intrigued, as you are here, with the reports of objects falling into lakes, because it does sound like, from what you're saying, that that's a recurring theme over there in Switzerland. 
tweet him. Yeah. yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs> I'm still feeling the effects of getting up at 6 in the morning here for that. <laughs> over, the, over there in Sweden. I guess just extrapolate a little bit more on that. Is this a recurring thing over there over the years of, of objects? Is there, is there a preponderance of lakes in Sweden, or is this just e even more anomalous? Well, uh, it's hard to say, really, because uh, the thing about those crashes into lakes are that they are very well documented. I mean, if you get an ordinary UFO story, there are one person seeing a light in the sky, and there's nothing much to do about that. Yeah. But those crashes, there are always two or three persons in the middle of the day. It's a, it's a nice nice weather, nearly always nice weather. Uh, and people around the, the lake can see this happen from other, from different angles as well. And the military comes there, they look for it, and but it's very well documented. It's very hard to say that this was just something in in someone's imagination. Yeah. One of the most uh, recent cases, uh, uh, I know you were interested in it, is from 1999 from Lake Backhorn mm -hmm. in, in Värmland in Sweden. Yeah. Uh, there was something crashing in front of seven persons. I mean, one of the persons was standing high up on a mountain, a little higher up from the, from the lake, seeing it coming over him, going to watch the lake. Uh, five of the other were laying at the shore, uh, taking a sunbath, and... Uh, the, the last person is on the other side of the lake, and everyone sees this object, which is also like the Namayaura object, a little uh, cigar shape with something sticking out on the sides, crashing down with a large splash in the water. Ten meter of water is, is uh, up in the sky. And the military comes there after this is reported. Uh, they are looking for this for, for weeks. Uh, they have divers, expert divers there. They have uh, uh, special equipment with uh, cameras they can uh, send automatically looking yeah. at, the sea sh at, the, at the bottom of the lake. And uh, this is uh, classified. But before they were able to classify it, we could get the names from the local police uh, before they <laughs> realized that this was not <laughs> to be happening. So we got all the witnesses quite early on. I spoke to them. Uh, and I also got now, I got most of the report declassified now. So I read 80% of it. And it says that they didn't find anything. Well, I don't know if they did. They put up a cover story because the people around the lake, of course, the other who didn't see the object, they were wondering where all those military personnel were coming from and all those cars and divers, what they were doing there. So they made up a cover story. And they told the press it was just uh, something, uh, an exercise that we're doing there. Interesting. Yeah, okay. So we're seeing sort of a change in, in the way it was a little bit uh, with that one. Yeah. All right, you uh, you nailed my 1999 UFO crash, uh, the Lake Boxen one I had here in the notes. The final one that I have written down that I want to talk about is the 1984 Minsk case. Uh, which mm. which you think is tied in with Russian rockets and stuff like that, which you may even know. I don't know yet, but uh, we'll find out. So talk about the 84 Minsk case, which is also pretty well known over there in Sweden. Yeah, I mean, that was a very well-published case when it happened. I mean, it was an aircraft with lots of civilians aboard. They were flying over uh, Russian territory. They were going, uh, I think they were going north. It was night, uh, or at least it was dark in the sky, and suddenly I saw something coming towards them, a very bright thing that seems to be uh, threatening the plane, the aircraft. 
they reported this, of course, and they took uh, evasive uh, action as well. And they landed, and uh, nobody really knew what, what did happen. But uh, in 1993, uh, I and uh, a friend who speaks Russian from Europe for Sweden went to Moscow, and uh, we, we dug into the, the Russian archives, and uh, we got 1,200 uh, original files back with us from, <laughs> from a researcher. And when we looked, them, looked through them, we saw that, wow, about 60 or 70 percent of all the observations made inside Russia were made of their own rocket experiments. Uh, because we saw them from Sweden as well. We could see them here. We also saw the Minsk case uh, when it happened. I got quite a few reports from Swedish observers. Uh, so when they were, they were firing those rockets from the very top secret uh, cosmodrome in Plesetsk, north of Moscow, you could see it from 2,000 kilometers away. Uh, so when it was dark, when it was night in Sweden, and, and also early, early morning in Russia, the sun was uh, was uh, hitting with its light the exhaust globes from, from the rockets. So they were painted against this black sky in Sweden and also in Minsk at this time. And uh, this was the explanation for the Minsk case, and it is also the explanation for for many other cases. I think the Minsk case was a, a submarine firing uh, rockets, but I mean uh, it was it was exactly the same. It looked the same for for the untrained observer. Yeah, it sounds like you're doing an amazing job here of uh, weeding out the the wheat from the chaff of UFO sightings. So I'm I'm really impressed with that. Now we've talked about the ten cases that I found on my uh, cursory research, but maybe you know of any others that we think should be noteworthy here. This is sort of a showcase of, of Swedish ufology. So is there any cases that, you know, stand out to you, you know, that, uh, that, that I might have missed out on or forgotten? Yeah, one case that is worth to mention is, um, I think it must be one of the, the highest military commanders uh, ever to, to see a UFO. His name was Helge Jung, and he was the commander-in-chief of the Swedish uh, forces in 1948, as well as any other persons we had talking about this uh, this hour. He was uh, seeing a craft uh, crashing in front of him. He was sitting outside his um, his house uh, outside Stockholm. It was a very nice day. He was reading his newspaper, and suddenly he heard something, and he looked up, and he saw this uh, cigar coming flying from, from his left side, flying over the lake, and suddenly crashing right in front of him. So he took uh, a small boat and uh, he rowed out together with a fellow uh, a comrade who was, was sitting beside him. They were rowing out to the, to the position where the object crashed, but of course it was seven meters deep so they couldn't see anything, but uh, he started a very thorough investigation there, secretly, mm-hmm. and uh, I found this in his diary at the War Archives many, many years later. And um, the very last note in, in his uh, diary about this incident is uh, found something in the lake. And after that, there is nothing, nothing more. Uh, so we don't know really. Wow, wow. <laughs> and when, what's that, what year is that note from? Uh, that's from 1948 as well. Everything happened at the autumn, in, in the autumn of 1948. Wow, that's stunning. So, and wow, have you talked? Have you been able to track this guy down or find him, or has he spoken to you at all, or is he is deceased now, or what? Yeah, the, the commander in chief he was deceased many years before I got hold of this. 
his, uh, his comrade, uh, when I found him, he was at the hospital, uh, and he couldn't speak. He was on Alzheimer-related history. And, uh, uh. So we don't know, really, but uh, there are lots of documents about it. And even the Americans were informed, because there were, I know there were um, American, uh, uh, from the American Air Force visiting Sweden just a couple of weeks after this had happened. And they were informed about this, but not that it was the commander-in-chief that saw it. <laughs> but later on it leaked, so you can see that in, in, uh, in documents now that they knew later on that it was Helge Jung who yeah. did see this. Wow. Are there any other cases we should touch on, or can we, should we keep going now? Yeah, we could go on. I mean, it's okay. uh, We could probably go so all night cases, here with so. <laughs> <laughs> Well, a couple of notes that sort of popped into my head here while I've been talking to you about the about the famous cases. Now, you mentioned the preponderance of UFOs going into lakes, and, and my mind goes to the USO phenomenon, which I presume you know of, you know, unidentified mm. submerged objects. Are there any cases of, uh, you know, the opposite sort of thing happening with objects coming out of the water? Yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I sat here just a couple of or, uh, months back uh, talking to the two top Swedish investigators from the, from the from the military that were interrogating and investigating observations of, U of USOs. Uh, I mean, uh, it was Russian submarines, they thought at least. Mm -hmm. uh, they have... Uh, they have talked to 1,400 witnesses, I think, or something like that, that they've seen what they think were were submarines. Uh, but no one of them has seen anything flying up. They have just seen things sticking up. Or Yeah. Yeah. But I really don't know. I don't think we have any really trustworthy story about things flying out of the water and up into the sky. Just the other way around, sorry to say. It's okay. <laughs> it's all right. It's okay. Now, here in America, we sort of have a little bit of an evolution of UFO shapes, if you will. You know, in the during the World War II era, it was, you know, the Foo Fighters, and then it sort of became flying saucer shape, and then, like, it turned more into a cigar shape, and then in recent times, it's been the Black Triangle. Has there been any sort of evolution of UFO shapes over there, or are they still, you know, seeing the cigar-shaped and saucer-type type, uh, things? Well, you, you could start really in the 1880s, and uh, when you saw balloons over uh, the, the Baltic area, you can find that in Russian archives, uh, the balloons were very much alike the, the UFOs we speak of today. And, of course, you have the, uh, the, the air... Uh, the air balloon, what do you call it, the Zeppelins, in yeah. uh, 1996, uh, <clears throat> So uh, you can see the same thing really going on in Sweden because we've got the aircraft, the unknown aircraft wave in the 1930s. Even though they didn't see aircraft all the time, they were always uh, depicted as, as aircraft, and uh, that was the only thing people could really think were flying. And after the the war, they were seeing those ghost rockets. I mean, rockets were, of course, uh, not uh, unknown to people. They were very much in the mind of people. So yeah. we must keep that, that in mind when we investigate. And uh, the first flying saucers really were coming in the 1950s in, in Sweden. Uh, quite a few pictures were taken of them. And uh, the classic flying saucer pictures, you can find them in the Swedish material as well. And uh, now... I think uh, we, we are mostly stuck with 
very much lights in the sky. Uh, the evolution uh, may have stopped, at least as far as I can see it here. A couple of years back, you could see uh, people who met uh, with friendly or sometimes unfriendly visitors from space uh, back in their bedrooms. Uh, you do not see quite a few, many cases of that more anymore. Uh, we have our contactees, of course, uh, people who say that they are in contact with uh, space beings. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I know 100 persons uh, by name here in Sweden that uh, have allegedly such contacts, and I try to follow quite a few of them, and I've done so for maybe 15 or 20 years in some cases. Oh, wow. Uh, so one of the most interesting cases really is uh, with a contactee. Um, happened in the, the 1980s, in the middle of the 1980s, in, the, in Småland, in the south of Sweden. Uh, his, his name is Ante Jonsson, and he was out with his car late at night, very late at night, going home from uh, from some friends. Uh, suddenly he saw what he thought was some craft beside the road. It was the middle of the winter, it was snowing, but he saw something standing out in the field. And uh, just half a minute later, he passed some very strange being walking uh, at the right of the, of the road, walking uh, in the same direction as he was driving. So he drove home because he was going to get his camera. He was very interested in flying saucers. And he got his camera, he went back. And when he came back, of course, the object wasn't there anymore, and the, the being wasn't there anymore. So he, uh, he said, oh, okay, I'll drive just... 100 meters further ahead, and I turned the car and go back home. But, but he couldn't do that because there was the object hanging right over the road, and he he was he was braking uh, as much as he could, and, and the car was spinning around, getting down into into the the ditch. Oh wow! And there he was found by the police because someone called the police uh, just minutes after this, saying that he was seeing a car standing out in the road with a huge object hanging over it. And that is in the police report. Oh, wow. So when the police came to this site, Ante Jonsson was, was sitting in his car, completely terrified. They couldn't speak with him. He was, uh, he was uh, having uh, cramps. He was uh, holding onto the steering wheel, so they had to, to break him loose. <laughs> and they took him to a hospital. So he couldn't have called the, the police telling about this. Someone else did see his car and an object wow. hanging over it. And that was the beginning of his experiences, because after that he's been in contact with otherworldly beings. He's been traveling with their spaceships, whatever they are. He doesn't know if they are space beings. He says, well, they are just strange creatures. But he's been in contact with them since 1986, I think it was. Oh wow! And now you're you're hardcore into the science aspect of this. What do you make of this whole uh, story? Then it sounds like well, this is one of the most strange stories because you can say something really happened. Yeah. For sure, because if something really happened, there was an object there, really. But his experiences afterwards can they be corroborated by say say me? Because I know Ante very well. I followed him since 1986. Yeah. I speak with him frequently, and he's got several things from those beings. He got some some stones and some some machines. He cannot show me the machines. I've seen the stones. They're looking quite ordinary stones. I mean, there's nothing strange about them. Much of this seems to be some sort of therapy for himself, 
because after 20 years I, I've seen that he 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 needs this he needs this com communication yeah. and there are are um, things happening to his life that he needs to be happening uh, you cannot deal with this just as an ordinary alien experience. There is something more to it, as I see. There's something connected to Hunter Jonsson's inner life as well. Yeah. And that makes it so difficult, really. It's very, very difficult to investigate. Mm. I hear what you're saying. I just don't do commercials. It's not my thing. Conan, this is different. It's a ton of money, and it's only going to be seen in Sweden. Only in Sweden? All the Hollywood guys do this. This one commercial couldn't hurt. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. It's the latest thing from Sweden, apparently. <laughs> well, I'm not surprised by that. The Swedes are so inventive, aren't they? We've sort of covered all the cases and this amazing history of UFO events over there in Sweden. Although, actually, let me just throw in one more question just about the general phenomenon over in Sweden. And that's just, we sort of talked about the, the 33 flap, and then I think you said there was one around 37, 38 of uh, Mystery Lights. Just want to know, you know, has there been an ebb and flow of UFO events? There are those flaps that we just talked about in the in the 30s. Uh, you know, has it gone sort of up and down over the years? Is it sort of any, any discernible pattern that we can figure out? Well, there has not been any flaps like the, uh, the ones you mentioned. 1946 was the latest really big one. There was some local flap in the 1980s, 1988, something like that, in uh, in a very small area in Sweden, but no natural flaps. And uh, if we look at the amount of reports, you can say that it, it uh, it's around one every day. Uh, it's been for many, many years now, one report uh, every day. And most of them are, of course, lights in the sky. Yeah. Uh, well, it could be anything, of course, but... Uh, when the Swedish military was the uh, most active in the 1950s, they got around 200, 250 reports to them every year. Wow. Seeing as you're scientifically oriented and, and definitely, uh, as we said, you know, you're not a skeptic, but you're trying to, you know, separate the wheat from the chaff of, of good cases from what may be uh, misidentifications, how much do you think uh, of the UFO phenomenon in Sweden is not so much unidentified craft in the classic UFO sense, but maybe some kind of Russian stuff, because I know you guys are so close to Russia that it sounds like yeah. you get a pretty good view of what's going on over there. you like Sarah Palin. Yeah. <laughs> well, in the 1970s, it was uh, hundreds of reports about uh, Russian rocket launches. In the beginning, we didn't understand what it was. We, we, we thought it was some, some new UFO phenomenon. But it, it wasn't. It, it took uh, a while for us to really find the solution to that. But now Russia has uh, not that much money anymore, so they don't shoot as many rockets anymore as they did in the 70s and 80s. <laughs> so this this kind of uh, phenomenon has, has vanished, you can say. But um, altogether, well, I do not think Russia really shoots uh, missiles over Sweden. That would be quite dumb. They did a mistake 15 years back when they accidentally shot one missile at Enare Tresk in the north of Finland, and it plunged down into the lake and it crashed there. It was a huge, tremendous uh, articles, and, well, <laughs> nobody was quite pleased with that, I can say. <laughs> so, so, I mean, if you are a foreign power, you do not fly your things over another country yeah. because it's very 
it's very easy that you, you could crash. So, so someone, someone is doing this, but it's not Russia, and it's, well, yeah, who knows? Just to take sort of a devil's advocate take on it, what about the possibility that there's some kind of, you know, uh, strategic alliance between the Americans and, and Sweden where, you know, we're allowed to test our stuff over there or maybe a UK deal or perhaps even I'm under the impression, you know, that Sweden's not a big military force, so I wouldn't expect them to have experimental aircraft. But, you know, what about those sort of options that I just threw out there? Yeah, that's a very, very good question because, of course, we know that Sweden <clears throat> for many years played some sort of neutral uh, neutral part of Europe, but uh, undercover, we did have all those contacts with, especially United States. We, um, our radar systems were, were tuned in so that uh, they could be used by uh, the United States Air Force if, if they needed it to do. Uh, many of the runways that were, were done at, uh, at, up in Luleå and other places where, where the, the, the aircraft could land in a conflict with Russia were uh, just uh, made for American aircraft as well. Uh, so we, we had this uh, undercover contact all the time during our, our neutrality. We are still neutral, but now we at least say that we, we haven't been as neutral as we should have. <laughs> so, <laughs> of course, yeah, I'm open for that. Uh, I mean, the, the, the Lake Bakun crash in 1999 could well have been something from NATO going astray. And if it was, Swedish uh, military would not say, of course, to, to the public or to us if yeah. they have found something. So okay. that, that is uh, something we do understand could be, could be a solution to some of this. Okay. And uh, I had one more case here I want to ask you about. You, it, you may not be able to identify it. When Klaus Hager wrote to me, he mentioned this case, but he didn't, he didn't provide a date or a location. So I'll just read what he said. And uh, maybe you can talk about it, because I want to, you know, he's the one that sort of helped me get this thing going. I want to give clauses due here, and it sounds like this one is of particular interest to him. So let me read what he wrote, and then uh, maybe you'll know what we're talking about. And if you don't, uh, we'll follow it up some other time. And mm -hmm. uh, here's what he says. A big light seen by many floated over a small town in Sweden. One of the leading ufologists claims that it was a mothership and that it also let out several small ships one of them apparently meaning to land in the heart of the city. He also claims that some kind of international security service silenced everything. The case may seem loony, but it has interesting components if you look at the details. Does that ring a bell with you? It was uh, August the 12th, 1974. <laughs> uh, I guess so. Yeah. There we go. Yeah, there we go. Because I was out that night and I was leaving just, uh, say, uh, 10, 20 kilometers away. On the site where it was observed, and it was my, my first major UFO investigation. Really, I started UFO Maria Stad in uh, in May 1974, and in August this happened. It was all over the news because uh, I think it was around 15 policemen standing up on this hill called Chinikulle, looking for for this happening, and at least 10 reporters and photographers from newspapers were standing beside them looking at the same thing. And they watched this for 90 minutes or something like that. And uh, the day after, they uh, they reported this in the newspapers with pictures and drawings and, and uh, witness stories of something cigar-shaped with windows letting out smaller objects coming down and some of these may have landed in uh, nearby Leedköping. 
this was not the case really. I spoke to everyone involved and I was out taking pictures on the same thing they were looking at that very evening. So this was my luck of course. Yeah. And I compared my pictures with what they, the photographers at the hill, uh, printed in the newspapers the day after. And you could see exactly the same stars around the objects. You, I know it was the same object. And that was planet Jupiter. Uh, this learned, I learned a lot of things from, from this, of course, that people that stands in a crowd are very easy to uh, get to see things. Yeah. Uh, if, one, if one people, if one person say what they are really looking at, because there was one person up on this hill who knew that this was a mothership, who knew that this was, uh, this was windows on it, and the things flying out were not meteors, you know, the Perseids, it's, a, it's the largest meteor flap every year. Yeah. It's August the 12th. And uh, <laughs> there were meteors all over the sky. And when they saw something flying up in the sky, someone said, oh, well, that must have come came from that object we are looking at. It didn't, of course. Yeah. So I, I learned a lot about uh, how people function in groups. And uh, I, know, I know the policemen, I've spoken to them many times, and they now thinks that they were really influenced by this this one person to see things that they did not see. Strange, interesting. Yeah, it does uh, say a lot about the group mentality and, and group witnesses and stuff like that. So interesting. Well, I'm glad we we cleared up that and and uh, talked about it for Claus Hager, who wrote in and, and sort of got the ball rolling on on this amazing yeah, yeah. interview that we're already in the midst of right now that I'm and just enjoying tremendously. Now, we've really delved into the history of the UFO phenomenon over there in Sweden. Let's talk a little bit about the history of UFO studies in Sweden. Here in America, it's had quite a history, and, and people have been looking at the UFO phenomenon for 60-plus years, it seems, if not longer than that. Now, I know UFO Sweden was formed in 1970. What was the scene like before that, before UFO Sweden came along? Were there people, I presume, you know, this has been going on over there at least uh, well-known to the public since the 30s. So yeah. there must have been somebody and, and, and people, maybe an organization or something, looking at UFOs. So what was it like over there, you know, in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, leading up to the creation of UFO Sweden? Yeah, it was uh, not until the 1950s that people really started to uh, think about those aerial objects as, uh, as flying saucers. <clears throat> so uh, the first groups were were assembled in the in the late 1950s, uh, very small groups really. They didn't investigate uh, the observations. They were merely some sort of meeting point for interested persons. And in the 1960s, uh, there came a large group in Stockholm in, into being, and that group uh, went on for maybe seven or eight years. Some of those persons in that group also joined UFO Sweden in 1970 because that was the first time somebody came out and said, we want to organize this uh, nationwide. Yeah. We want to be an umbrella for all the small groups. And uh, UFO Sweden was built as an umbrella, really, and still are an umbrella for, for smaller groups. Yeah, it does sound like that. It's almost, uh, to draw an American equivalent, it sounds like it's sort of like you guys' version of MUFON in a way. Yeah, where, yeah. Um, very much alike. Yeah. MUFON, that's right. Yeah, so it sounds like you guys are doing some amazing work. I was reading uh, in the newsletter 
you know, you said the organization was very different in the 70s than what it is today. I guess talk a little bit about that. What was so different about UFO Sweden back then when it first started out? Well, it started out as uh, an ET organization. We did know the answer. Uh, we didn't try to find the answer because uh, we had it already. Uh, most of the persons who joined UFO Sweden in 1970, they knew that we had visitors from outer space. And uh, they just wanted to use the organization to make the public uh, aware of the same thing that uh, they knew. Yeah. But after a couple of years, uh, people got quite frustrated. They didn't see the evidence, really. They left the group and uh, got more and more critically minded. So other groups started around in Sweden that were more into critical investigation. And uh, in the middle of the 1970s, for Sweden also st started to change into what it is today, really. And in 1980, you can say, Sweden started to be a scientifically oriented investigating body. And uh, since that, we have tried to apply that. Wow, interesting. It sounds like you guys are maturing a little faster than the American UFO studies, because we're, we're quite stuck in the uh, extraterrestrial realm still. Uh, it sounds like that maybe that debate was going on over there in Sweden. Yeah, I'm sure it still is. Yeah, it's right. Um, it was more prominent maybe in the 70s, but uh, it's still there, of course. Uh, there had been made some surveys, and in the 19, middle of the 1990s, 24% of all the Swedes believed that we were visited by alien beings now. Uh, that's around half of the figure in the United States, I think, but that's quite a few. So, so we do have uh, have that aspect, of course, and... Uh, if Sweden does not shut the door, shut the door for an ET solution, of course, it could very well be that there is something out there that we do not understand, but we, we cannot say that we know that. And now, uh, obviously here in America, we have just some amazing figures in the history of UFO studies. Uh, you know, I could run down the list. You already mentioned Major Kehoe and... You know, mm. J. Allen Hynek and James McDonald, Jacques Vallée. I mean, we had some real uh, powerful players here in the 50s and 60s and uh, 70s looking at the UFO phenomenon. I guess, you know, uh, I did see the note here in the 2003, issue three of your newsletter talking about deceased researchers. And, and like me, you are someone who has a real appreciation for the history of the people who were involved. So... Are there some, you know, big names and key figures in Swedish UFO history that we should, you know, give recognition to here during the interview? Who, who were some of the, the players, uh, you know, back in the day that, that you heard of when you were first getting into this? One of the few that can be known in, in uh, outside Sweden is Jostarian. Jostarian got some of his books translated into English as well. He was very prominent in the 1970s, and uh, he was the first ufologist in Sweden that really tried to to look into UFOs from a more scientifically oriented point of view, but uh, he was an ET believer as well, which everyone was in the early 1970s, but he was also broad-minded enough to understand that if he was to show that uh, ET was here, he really had to do it in a way that could convince not only the public, but the, the scientific community as well. So he was the one that may pave the ground a little to turn turn uh, all this around for us, and he was very old when this when he started to investigate UFOs. He was in his seventies. Uh, oh wow! So it's uh, quite quite late. Yeah. Wow. So now, would you say, just uh, just based on you know 
the general mood of the people there who are quote-unquote ufologists and people who are looking at the UFO phenomenon over there in Sweden? Would you say you're, you guys are, are more in the camp of, uh, I don't want to say anti-ETH, but you know, looking at other alternative solutions to the UFO mystery than just saying it's ETs? Well, we, we are quite European. I mean, if you look all over Europe, there is a much broader, I think, way to look on, on UFOs. But I'm also on, on quite a few email lists where there is uh, very many British, American investigators that are not ET believers. Oh, they're yeah. Looking yeah. At this as, they're just looking at this as a, a phenomena, a range of phenomena. I mean, I don't think you should say it's just one phenomenon. It's, it's a range of phenomena. Uh, they're very broad-minded, they're very skilled, they know knows their history. But those persons are not very well known to the public. I mean, they are they are doing a tremendous work. But the persons you hear, listen on in TV, on TV and on, in radio and such, they are usually not the, the best investigators, <laughs> I should say. <laughs> they are maybe may a little too um, eager to, to be seen in public. They should spend more more time out in the field, uh, really investigating cases. Yeah. I mean, I can see in like, like persons like Stanton Friedman, who is very well known, of course, over the world. He doesn't do any UFO research. He's still stuck with his, uh, his Roswell and MJ-12 and things like that. And he does that all the time. I haven't seen any progress, not at all. They're just standing in one point, in one uh, uh, just uh, standing there and not moving forward. But there are other persons who, who dwell into the archives and uh, go out into the fields and uh, speak to the witnesses. Because it's happening right now, right under our noses. So you don't have to dwell into the old things that uh, that never leads anywhere, I think. Absolutely, yeah. Now, how closely do you guys in Sweden work with uh, the folks in Norway? Because I know there's a lot of, uh, in the newsletter, there's a lot of sort of correlation between you guys. Uh, how closely tied are the two countries as far as the UFO phenomenon goes and, and UFO studies? Well, we're very close to both Norway and Denmark uh, because of the, the language. We, we understand each other easily and uh, we have history together. Uh, Norway especially, the project uh, has stolen in the 1980s. Stalin is probably the most well-known UFO area in the world. I, I wasn't there myself because I was living in a different part of Sweden right then, but many people around me from UFO Sweden, they were the persons behind the Stalin project. And uh, I remember when they told me about Alan Heineck coming there, he was so impressed because that was the first really scientific project made uh, ever in the world. It was in 1983 mainly. We'll talk a little bit about the Hestalen project, because I've never heard of this, so uh, if, it's, if it's that impressive, I'm definitely interested in hearing more about it. Well, yeah, it is, because um, it's the first example of a UFO area being investigated by ufologists from two different countries, uh, both uh, by uh, interviewing witnesses and bringing radar and uh, lots of scientific instruments into this area. And for uh, for many months, been covering uh, the phenomenon flying around this valley because there was uh, hundreds of sightings of unusual lights coming, going in and out this Hestalen valley. 
and we have many of these on film and lots, of course, uh, ordinary pictures. So it was very well documented. Uh, and this project was uh, a UFO Sweden, UFO Norway project. We we got assistance from the military in Sweden and from the military in Norway. We got bandwagons and uh, and uh, equipment to <laughs> the tents and uh, other equipment because it's very cold. It's 40, 35, 40 degrees minus up in Heston in the winter. Oh wow! So it was a, it was a very huge uh, project uh, and uh, it was very very well uh, accomplished, I should say as well. Wow! Now, what kind of findings did you guys come out with uh, following the project? Anything of of note? Yeah, I mean, we can say that uh, there really was some unknown unknown aerial phenomenon flying over this valley. Uh, but we never got to say exactly what it was. So I mean, it was a UFO, of course, but, but uh, we we never could identify all of them. Uh, so I think most people uh, would be glad to say, well, we proved it was UFOs, but uh, we are never satisfied. We do not come to a conclusion. So we didn't really reach as far as we would have loved to do. We saw it on radar a couple of times. Uh, but um, they are not not conclusive evidence, really. The radar we brought with us is not as good as it should be today. I mean, it, it was a little too... It didn't see the finer details in the movements. Yeah. But uh, as an example of a project being done between ufologists in different countries, this is... Uh, uh, I never heard of it before or, or afterwards, really. Yeah, it seems pretty unique. I don't know of any American cooperative projects that, that I can think of off the top of my head here, uh, at least with, you know, Canada or Mexico or even the U.K., which are pretty tight with America, so. Yeah. I gotta... we, we, try to, we try to make projects uh, every second year. We, uh, I assembled 10 to 12 of the, of the best investigators, and we spend 10 days of our vacation somewhere in Sweden, and uh, we bring with us case files from that area, <clears throat> and we knock doors, and we try to uh, to uh, to find uh, observations that we did not know of before, and we try to make new investigations of the ones we bring with us. And this is not, so far as I know, done anywhere in the world either. Uh, and this is very productive. We, we do find very interesting things. But to be able to do that, you must go out in the media the week before. And uh, we we give interviews to the local media, to the TV, to the radio, so everyone in the area knows who is knocking the door. Yeah. And then people open the doors because they know who we are. Yeah. Wow. I'm I'm very impressed here, Claus. I'm I'm just uh, I'm just tremendously impressed. Now it sounds from the description of UFO Sweden right now that you guys are doing pretty well in in the sense that you've really established yourselves here. I want to say since like the mid '90s or something like that, as you know, the premier. UFO group and, and sort of got yourself entrenched in the minds of, of uh, the people over there in Sweden. Yes, I mean, if, we, if you find a newspaper article about us, it's never, it's never a bad one. It's always uh, giving us uh, the serious credit, and uh, no one is laughing at us, but they see us as a very, as a very good uh, organization, I think. I can read articles, uh, as I did yesterday. Someone was writing an article, oh, please, you should report this uh, to UFO Sweden. He ended the article with... And uh, we have also a very close uh, relationship with the Swedish military because we do not see the military as our adversaries. We do see them as uh, 
as a source of uh, information. So we try to make uh, contacts. We have very, very good contacts. So we can make uh, investigations that no one else in the whole world can do. We can get information that um, can solve the case. Uh, we also have uh, persons from the Swedish military at our field uh, investigation courses. Oh, wow. So they give lectures, and they also have been there to educate themselves. We share our same database. We built a database a couple of years back that uh, the Swedish Research Defense Institute was taking care of all UFO reports from the public for the military uses. So when they put in, get a report, they type it into our database so we can see it as well. That's amazing. That's stunning. I'm, I'm, I'm just blown away by that. So you guys are pretty tight over there with the military. That's what I was going to ask you next about because, you know, this thing's been going on since the, uh, since the 30s over there in Sweden. So they must know, you know, well, they must have some idea or they must have been investigating this now for decades. So, I mean, what do you think the military over there knows? Or are they just as puzzled as we are about this? Yeah, I think they are as puzzled as we are, really. Uh, I know so many persons in, deep inside the military, so I can say that they do not have the answer. Uh, I am right now looking for some uh, classified material that I found traces of the war archives. It's quite new, it's from the 1990s and the early and the 1980s. So it's still classified, but it's mixed up with uh, a lot of submarine observations when uh, we suspected that Russia was sending mini-subs into Swedish waters. So mixed up with that material, you can find as well UFO observations. And I know about at least two from a certain year that I'm trying to get out from the military systems now. Of course, they do not tell us everything. I mean, I, I don't, I'm not so naive that I think that they will tell us everything they know because they think we are nice guys. <laughs> <clears throat> they, they, they don't. Uh, but we can see things that no one else can. We got hints about things that we can ask for. We may get to know that you should ask that question to that guy. When yeah. we do that, we get to know things. Yeah. We've already sort of talked about how there was, you know, some clandestine affiliation between the United States and the UK and, and Sweden at the time. How informed do you think they are about the UFO phenomenon from the US and the UK? And, and what's your attitude about that whole thing? Do you think that the United States knows a lot more about the UFOs than maybe the Swedish government knows? Or? Well, I, they should do. I mean, they have a longer history, really, but uh, I'm not really sure how much they, they really know about UFOs. I think uh, if they knew the answer, we, we should have seen that in, in, in some way. They're always whistleblowers that you should hear from. Yeah. Of course, you could say there are whistleblowers. I mean, there are lots of people who are telling their stories. And uh, yeah, that's right. But you do not see the hard evidence. And evidence like that are prone to leak in the end. I mean, this is a 60-year cover-up, if there is really a cover-up. And it's very, very hard to cover up things for 60 years without anything more potentially interesting is leaking. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Now, we talked about Project Argus. Have there been other sort of, uh, you know, military government investigations into UFOs of an official nature like that? I know you said Argus was secret at first and yeah. sort of just came out, but do you know anything of, of any other sort of uh, investigations like that? Well, if you compare it to the United Kingdom, where there have been quite a few 
uh, investigations, really thorough investigations into their own UFO reports. I cannot see that there has been anything like that in Sweden. They have done uh, investigations as they get the reports. But I cannot see that anyone has been sitting down, taking all this together and, and uh, saying, well, this is what we have found out. Yeah. In 1965, that's the only, only time you can say that something like that did happen, because then the Swedish headquarters said that we are not taking uh, UFO observations uh, for investigation anymore. They should be transferred to the Swedish uh, Research Defense Institute instead. That is, they find something that will be of military interest, they will send it to us. Interesting. That's the the only really conclusion I heard they made. But uh, <laughs> some uh, funny thing about uh, I think it was in 1948. Yes, together with the Helge Jung observation, the commander in chief saw this object crash into the lake. Mm -hmm. There you can see in a, in a secret, uh, former secret uh, paper from, uh, I think it was from the Washington, from Washington, some archives in Washington, that Swedish uh, aircraft uh, Air Force personnel told their uh, visiting Americans in 1948 that they thought that the flying saucers were real and from outer space. Oh, wow. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Really, and they were not not any names, uh, sorry to say, it's not checkable. I cannot uh, know really who said that, but it seems like they, at that time, were at least believers in the ET uh, hypothesis. So, well, that's the only case I know, really, but they were not named, so it's not worth that much to me. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. Now, you said that you don't think that there is somebody sort of like uh, doing these investigations in the Swedish government, but I know that, you know, over there in Europe, there's been a lot of document releases from the UK and from France and some other countries and stuff like that. Uh, what's the document situation like over there in Sweden, and, and, and is there a, a release ongoing or anything like that? Yes, we have lots of documents, of course, but uh, the Swedish uh, military their files have always been a non-secret. Around 2,500 cases up till 1965 or something like that, uh, they were non-classified. Some of them were, but uh, I think most of it are now out in the open. There is not really anything big to, to uh, expect from the Swedish military. There is no thousand observations laying somewhere in the secret cabinet to be released. Yeah, uh, there is nothing like that. Uh, they they, uh, they have released what they can. I think uh, the, the the biggest release was the ghost rocket release when we found it in 1986. There were thousands and thousands of papers. So it sounds like it's more like that you guys find these documents than they actually just release them into the public, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Interesting. So you're doing great work there too. Uh, now over here in America, we have this like new. It's not really – I wouldn't say it's a, a new movement, but it's sort of the the rebirth of a, of a previous sort of movement here in the UFO field, and that's to sort of like push on the government for stuff, and it's sort of exopolitical-based and very ETH-oriented. Do you guys have anything of that bent over there over in Sweden, or 
you know, with the openness from the military and the files and stuff like that, maybe not. Maybe that's not the case. I don't know. Uh, you can tell me. Yeah, we, we do not have anything like that uh, because we do this all the time. We have done this as far as I can remember back. <laughs> uh, so th this is nothing that we, we are aiming at right now. We are looking for, for certain cases. Yeah. That we are. We know that there are uh, pictures that are not to be found in in the archives that should be there. There's a film from 1946 of a ghost rocket that were very badly badly shot. It, it says in the report that nothing was seen on it, but it may be still filed away somewhere, and maybe today you can see something. We are looking for things like that. I don't think they are hidden for us. They are just misplaced, and uh, lots of UFO material are not in the UFO box. I mean, there are no boxes like that. They are on, on different departments uh, all over the place. So that's the problem yeah. in so many places. Now, do you get any flack from, like, other UFO researchers for that stance? Because, uh, you know, the, the UFO phenomenon breeds paranoia and breeds, you know, the belief that there are secrets being covered up. And, and I presume there's got to be people over there in Sweden that do think that the government's hiding the UFO secret. I mean, do you hear that from people, or is that, or are you guys sort of past that yeah, mentality? Yeah, sure, sure, we do hear that. And they usually uh, put us in the same box as the military. I mean, we are part of the of the conspiracy, of course. Uh, I've been accused of being on the payroll for, for both the CIA and, uh, and also the Swedish military. I wish <laughs> I were. I wish I were. <laughs> then I would have three salaries. That would be nice. But, uh, well, uh, it's not like that. Uh, but there are believers that think uh, that we should take a different stance and say that uh, we have visitors from outer space and we know that. I would be glad to say that if I really did know that. Well, many people have been into this for many years and they want to see results. And the only results you really see is that we can find more and more explanations and uh, and also find uh, a few cases that we do not solve. Yeah. So the answers are the wrong answers for those persons, uh, not to me. I mean, I'm glad every answer is a very good answer. That's my point of view. Exactly, yeah. Well, you know, I think you're pretty cool, so I don't believe uh, that you're part of the conspiracy. So, And, and if you oh, are, then, I, then I'm in on the conspiracy now, too. So I've always, yeah, wanted, yeah. I've always <laughs> wanted to be a part of it, so that's cool. Um, one particular person of note stood out here when I was looking into, uh, you know, the history of the government and the military and the UFOs over there in Sweden, and that's Anders Gurdnant. And um, yes. she, um, we talked about him a little bit before the interview started. So uh, I guess tell people about the story of Anders Gernant and, uh, you know, his his role in the whole history of ufology over there in Sweden. Yeah, Anders uh, passed away uh, just a couple of months back, really. And he, he was um, <clears throat> a politician for for uh, one of the largest parties in, in Sweden. And he was always trying to... Um, to get the government and, and uh, other politicians to understand that they should be looking into UFOs as well as other topics. So he was uh, campaigning for that in, in newspapers and uh, he was interviewed and uh, I think he got a lot of uh, problems, uh, of course, sticking out his neck. Yeah. It was in the late 70s and early early 80s. And, uh, but he stood his ground and he, uh, he never, I mean, he... He was a politician for, politician for his, all his life, so 
he survived. Yeah. <laughs> but he did a great job, I think. He did a great job trying to put this on the political agenda. That sort of raises an interesting point here, because you said earlier that uh, the military said, uh, you know, they weren't taking the reports and it should go to, uh, I believe you said, the Swedish Research Development Defense Institute. Defense yeah. Institute. There we go. Has the Swedish government ever made any sort of statement about UFOs or or any sort of uh, stance taken by them or I guess you could say the military too uh, regarding UFOs? No, never really, because uh, smaller groups uh, have, have written to, to uh, the prime minister and well, other politicians as well, but they have never got any any answer that you can say have revealed what the government really thinks about UFOs. Uh, I know that quite a few politicians are interested in UFOs, and uh, uh, well, I think uh, that's as far as it will go. Uh, the Swedish military has, has never said anything official about UFOs either. Uh, they are interested because it can be something foreign uh, intruding on, on the Swedish airspace. Yeah. That's uh, their interest, of course, and that's understandable. But because in that amount of, of sightings that uh, that are sifting through their uh, hands, uh, there will, of course, be interesting reports that we really would like to take a look at as well. And, and sometimes they are leaking reports to us. And uh, I got some very interesting cases coming out from from military investigators that find uh, reports that they cannot identify. And they have sent uh, them to me and see if I can help. And uh, sometimes I've been able to do that, and, uh, not not always. Nice, nice. Interesting. Yeah, so it sounds like you're in the good a good position. I don't I don't see what the uh the problem with with the way you guys are handling things is, uh but you know, I I know the way that the factions of the world of ufology are, so I can, <laughs> yeah, I can, yeah. I can see I their mindset. <laughs> and then uh, another pillar here of the world of ufology that I want to talk to you about is uh, the media, which is obviously a big, big part of uh, the world of of America here, of course, and I'm sure over there in Sweden. And since the UFO phenomenon has been so prominent over there in Sweden over the years, I'm sure that it's had quite a face, a public face, uh, the UFO phenomenon has on the media. And in mm. the newsletter, you say that the debate over what UFOs are, I presume, has faded from the public eye since the 1970s. So I guess let's just talk a little bit about, you know, how has the media covered UFOs over there in Sweden, you know, since these things just sort of burst on the scene, uh, as you say, like in the 50s, I think it's when you said it first really started cooking as far as people being interested in it. Yeah, if you start backwards, you can say that it's uh, it's uh, back on the agenda again because, uh, well, I'm a journalist uh, by profession since 1978, and I uh, I think I know how how my fellow journalists work. So I have no problem getting in TV or radio or or being interviewed. Uh, the last years, I've been asked by several large newspapers to write uh, articles uh, on their. Uh, uh, critics pages uh, about UFOs and I've done so As, and that's uh, never happened before that's quite new Wow. Okay. Uh, so I think it's on the agenda again and uh, a couple of weeks back we had a huge conference in the, in Norrköping Europe Sweden's uh, early convention yearly convention we had there and it was covered by every thinkable media uh, it was uh, it, it was printed in uh, maybe 80 or 90 
newspapers and uh, TV and radio and uh, on the web, um, web TV. Mm-hmm. You mentioned it. Everything was very positive. There was nothing about us being any lunatic fringe or something like that, but very serious articles. Nice, nice. Now, was it like that before, though? You say it sort of changed. Was there was there that bias, the giggle factor, as they call it here in America, going on in Sweden, too? Yeah, yeah, it was, of course. In, in the 1950s, it was taken very, very seriously, uh, because the military took it very seriously, and they investigated the cases. And you can see, looking through the, the articles from the 1950s, and it's very good coverage, uh, no giggle factor, mm-hmm. uh, because uh, nobody knew what UFOs was then, and very few speculated about uh, there being ET. They were just taking this as a strange uh, phenomenon. Yeah. Uh, in the 60s, uh, I think according to that many Swedish ufologists turned out to be in contact with uh, <laughs> otherworldly beings by themselves, and uh, the media also took on that, and uh, the 60s was not as serious as, as the 50s. When I grew up uh, being a ufologist in the 1970s, you could see, I think, quite good articles, uh, nothing on TV. If it was a program on TV that was something to remember, being remembered for years, uh, on the radio, yeah, sometimes. Uh, but in the 80s and 90s, uh, it exploded, in the early 90s especially, when cable TV got uh, very big in Sweden, mm-hmm. every channel would love to have me in the sofa or something, uh, <laughs> speaking about UFOs. And yeah. I, well, so I think I've done about, say, 150 TV and radio interviews and, uh, since 1990. Oh, wow. So that's quite a few now. And uh, I was there just a couple of weeks back again in uh, nationwide TV talking about uh, conspiracy theories and uh, UFOs. Now, you said the debate, though, has faded from the public eye. Would you say they're still debating it, or is it more just they want you on to, you know, provide information about UFOs without sort of an argument about, you know, what the source of the phenomenon is? Uh, I think it's like that. Uh, The the, uh, debate is not that prominent. If you look at the letters to the editor pages in the newspapers, you very, very seldom find any letters about UFOs. In the 70s and 60s, there were lots of them, lots of them. Interesting. I don't know really why it is like that. People are out on the internet, and I write a regular blog about uh, strange phenomena, mm-hmm. but uh, Sweden's uh, largest morning newspaper's website, where I'm employed, and uh, I got lots of comments from the public that way. I got huge amounts of emails, and uh, every day there are people calling me. Uh, today, just before I spoke to you, there was... Uh, a student calling me, they are doing some work at school, uh, they, they needed help with uh, with an interview. and uh, So it's, it's in the mind of, uh, of people all the time. I think it's not it's not fading away, but the debate is not, it's not as prominent as it should be. What do you ascribe or, uh, you know, what do you think is the reasoning behind, uh, well, you kind of said the cable TV fueled the explosion in the 90s, but what do you think uh, has sort of put you guys back on the map as far as the media goes? And taking it to a more serious level, because you say it does sound like yeah. uh, you know you're being treated more seriously. What do you think is the reasoning behind that? Just the fine work that you guys have been doing with UFO Sweden, or or is there a change you know in the collective public mind frame as far as UFOs go? Oh no, there are not a change to uh, to it in the public mind frame, but maybe 
the interest into UFOs and other unknown things are very, very big. Very big. You can see that uh, I'm out speaking at schools uh, quite a lot, and and uh, and the, the students, the pupils are very interested. But of course, it's uh, it's the many, many years of hard work to show that we are a serious player in this field. Yeah. That makes us uh, available in in different forums that we were not available earlier. Uh, and have, we have so many contacts within the science, the scientific community, uh, who are speaking well of us and are working together with us when we need help. And that is spreading, of course. Uh, people see that we are we are a good thing to to write about or to to make available for the public. Yeah, that raises an interesting point, actually, that I hadn't even considered. And that's the uh, you know the role of academia over there in Sweden, because you know here in America. The academics, they won't touch UFOs, and very few will. And it was a little bit different, you know, in the late 60s when James E. McDonald was around and sort of bridging mm. those two worlds. But we don't have that bridge anymore, and it seems like there's a gulf now between, you know, the independent uh, public investigation of ufology and, and the world of academics. What, what's it like over there in Sweden as far as those two, those two camps? Well, if you take a look at the academics inside the physics department, they are not that interested because... Uh, they know, of course, about the phenomenon, but they are not interested in it. I don't really know why. They have other things to do, I suspect. But uh, if you look at the uh, science of religion, they are using our archives all the time, writing papers. Uh, so um, from that point of view, there is a scientific uh, interest into UFOs, but not as a hardware problem, really, more as a, as a problem for for the observer or the community to see how that uh, affects the community and why we believe in certain things. There we can see a very, very huge interest and we can also help them with information about that, of course. Interesting, interesting. So like a psychological, and did you say religious? Yes, yes. Interesting. Most of the studies, I mean, there was a study published in, in Finland last year uh, at that high academic level and it was studying UFOs from uh, the belief system, and uh, that I think is the, is the most common academic paper uh, dealing with UFOs all over the world. Uh, oh, wow. From that point of view. Interesting. Yeah. Wow. Okay. We're down to the last uh, tenet here of what I like to talk about with my international UFO guests, and that's the just the general public in UFOs. Uh, you know, we've been sort of beating the drum here throughout this conversation about just the long and rich history of UFOs over there in Sweden. And uh, I'm just so happy that I that I got a hold of you and we're doing this interview because the the material is just unbelievable. I can't wait for people to hear this this conversation. What's been the evolution of the general public as far as UFOs go? I mean, you said earlier that I forget the year you said, but it was something like 24% thought that they were easy. Yeah, middle so. of the 1990s. Okay, yeah. So what you know, what's it been like over the years as far as what people think about UFOs over there in Sweden? Yeah, I think uh, if I look at the 1970s when I was really starting to, to, to work with investigations myself, people were interested. Uh, they they could believe that we were we were visited from other planets. Yes, they could, uh, but they they would not uh, they would not do anything about it. They would not uh, engage in engage themselves in investigations, maybe. And nowadays it's quite the same as not not getting involved. People are um, are not 
getting involved in investigations. It's hard to find people who really want to spend time out in the field. We do that. We find a couple of new people every year that could be good researchers. But uh, people believe in, in so many things today that they did not believe in, in the 70s. I think people are believing in too, too many things, really too much. Uh, especially young people are out on the Internet quite a lot, looking at YouTube and uh, seeing films that, wow, what a film, and send me a link and ask me, what do you think about this uh, fantastic UFO observation? I say to them that I cannot say anything about it. You do not really know who took the picture, uh, when was it, you don't... Uh, don't have any information. Uh, they don't uh, grasp that, that they need to know more before starting to believe. Uh, I think knowing is better than believing, but many people think believing is, is quite sufficient. And uh, <laughs> that, that is a problem for me, I think. Uh, I want to, I'm out quite a lot giving speeches and uh, lectures. And, uh, I, I want to, to, to learn uh, from people and I want people to learn from me. And uh, as you know, we have the, the largest UFO archives in the world in Sweden, and uh, yeah. it's used from uh, ordinary citizens, but also from ufologists all over the world, of course. But you should think that people in Sweden should use it more, but they don't. They think it's sufficient to take a look at the YouTube and uh, on the cable TV. That's uh, UFO information for them. Yeah. Okay. So I see. I see where you're going with this, and it, it's interesting. That's sort of the people who have sort of an interest, I guess you'd say, or or even go the extra mile to look it up on the internet. What about just the, the man on the street over there in Sweden? What do they think? Has this been around for so long that their their attitude is sort of blasé, and you know they're like, yeah, it's UFOs, but you know we we haven't known the answer to that for seventy plus years, and and there's no point in really worrying about it or you know what's what's the general attitude over there in, in sweden with regards to this phenomenon well it's new persons born every day you know and uh, they are born into the world as completely strangers to everything and uh, suddenly they they stumble on the ufo phenomena after 10 or 15 years in their life and it's new for them and they don't have have the history so um, i think there are as many now as ever that are uh, believing or more interested in ufos uh, and it will be like that for, for for as long time as I can see, I think. Uh, when I'm out giving speeches, there are lots of interests. And, uh, if I look in my email box, uh, there's no problem. They are there. They are interested. Yeah. So uh, okay. I think m most of the people are curious. Uh, many things they know, of course. Yeah, yeah. And, and now you touched on it just a minute ago, but I definitely want to talk to you about the Archives for UFO Research, which is, as you said, the largest UFO archives in the world. Uh, you know, tell us about that. It's been around since 1973, which is, you know, amazing in and of itself. I mean, you guys should just be just tremendously proud of, of putting something together like that. I wish there was a, you know, a centralized sort of place like that in America. Maybe we're too big for that. We're going to need an East Coast and a West Coast one or something, but... You know, we need yeah. something like that, but I guess talk a little bit about the archives for UFO research, and is there anything that, that you know, our American listeners can do to help you guys out at all with the, with the project? Well, we, we started, as I said, in 1973, and it was just, uh, just a bookshelves, really. Some, some bookshelves with uh, 50 or 60 books. That was all. But um, during the time, we, we understood that it was very important to, to save the historical material because we saw that many persons who died, their material was just thrown away. 
nobody was interested in, in keeping it. It, uh, that's from, it was pictures, it was films, it was books, and it was a report. Uh, they were thrown away or, or burned, or the relatives didn't understand uh, the value of the information. So we started to, to save that kind of information. We, we called people before they went away. Uh, we persuaded them to give things to us. We, when they put uh, us in their wills. Uh, they, uh, well, we would travel around all of Sweden, collecting everything we could. And then we started to travel further around. And I go to, to the United Kingdom every second year, and I fill my car to the very top. I mean, it's... Uh, hundreds of hundreds of kilos with uh, UFO material donated to the archives and oh, wow. we, uh, we we get, we exchange things with uh, other archives all around the world now wow interesting all right now what about is there anything people here can do to help you out i mean you know times are tough as it is so everybody's just yeah. barely getting by but is there anything that they can do to help out the uh, the archives for UFO research that that you suggest the most important thing is to, to save the material. If somebody has a UFO interest and is passing away, the relatives should take a look at the internet. And uh, we are at afu.se, archiveuforesearch.se. And uh, we have saved uh, tons of material from the United States as well. Uh, ufologists like uh, Bill Caulfield and John Otto, who is not known to today's researchers it were very huge in their time i mean i have down in my basement uh, nearly 100 reel to reel uh, tapes with adamski bathroom all of the early contactees that were taped in the 1950s by john otto they're going to be transferred to a digital format now uh, we we take care of everything i got by mail just the other day from finland from the old ufo Finland group, uh, their their reports. Uh, I also got from Britain just a couple of weeks back uh, 20 kilos of UFO material. Wow. We are looking everywhere for it. We want to save this. We are not in it for the money. We, we are spending lots of money <laughs> to keep the archives going. It's 250 square meters today, and uh, we have we have people employed during uh, the, uh, the the community in Norrköping. They put people there because they know that we are a good uh, employer. Uh, so they pay for us having them. And and how's the archive work? Like if I was to go over to Sweden, I can just go in there and check out all your stuff? Yeah, you can do that. But you can always uh, contact us via, via Internet. And uh, many people do. They write uh, emails asking, do you have that article? Do you have that um, issue, that magazine? Could you help me with information about that and that? And we do that. Uh, we must charge for our, our sometimes at least, but uh, sometimes we also help out just for free. Uh, but we are there for, for the UFO research community, really. We want to supply them with information. We have 20,000 Swedish UFO reports. We have all the blue book files from the microfilm. We have 11,000 books about UFOs. We have 32,000 magazines. So it's so much, films, uh, everything. Amazing. This is amazing. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I hadn't heard too much about this, so I'm glad that more people are going to find out more about this uh, 
through you. Hopefully you won't get inundated with <laughs> yeah, yeah. requests. We would love that. It's no problem. And now uh, I just want to talk about you a little bit more here as we wrap it up. You said it's better to know than to think. Uh, you know, how are you going to feel? You've been doing this for almost 40 years. So, I yeah. mean, what do you think about this phenomenon? Uh, how are you going to feel if, if you go another 20, 30 years and we don't get an answer? Do you think we're going to find out an answer to what this is, uh, you know, in your lifetime? Well, I, I'm still puzzled about it. I know much more now uh, in 2009 than I did in 1974 when I was 16 years old, of course. I can explain things that I I wasn't near to explain then. Mm -hmm. I can explain that now. But there are still very, very good reports that are so puzzling that I really cannot see an easy explanation to. Uh, and I hope, I hope I will live to have an answer that I know that I will not, of course, because there will always be some reports left, some that we are not able to... Uh, close. But uh, the little we can do may bring uh, a little light into at least a part of the UFO phenomena, because there are several solutions to it, not, not only one. Yeah. Now on your website too, you do have uh, advice for researchers. Uh, I guess talk a little bit about that, because you've been doing this for a long time, and, and you know, I, I am totally in line with a lot of what you have to say about, about the research. Uh, and the way research is done, and, and I looked over here your advice, and it's it's tremendous. So I mean, I want you to share it with with people because you've been doing this for like, like I said, close to forty years. So I mean, yeah. just in the in the two and a half hour conversation we've had here, I've already gained just a, a huge amount of respect for you and, and what you've done. So I guess you know, share this advice for people who are going to be listening to this interview and who want to get involved. Yeah, I think it's very important not to start out as a believer. You must start out as a curious investigator. That's the most important thing. You must not, so right, don't invest your own soul in one case. You must stand, stand free to make a judgment. I mean, I followed people for 20 years. They are friends of mine, but they also know that I, I can come up to a solution that they do not like. When I wrote the book about Gösta Carlson, I had known him for 10 years. And in the book there are evidence uh, that shows that the case is not as bona fide as he, he wants it to be. But he had respect for me and I had respect for him. And uh, I can see ufologists in, in other countries defending a case, defending the witness. The witness. And uh, never, never turn out to do that because that, that is the wrong way to do it. Then you are then you are not able to see other solutions. Yeah. So that, that may be the one and, and most important thing to, I, I can say. And uh, there's so many things. As I, I pointed out, I think it's, uh, is it 11 points or something I put on paper, yeah. Yeah, yeah, 11 points. Yeah. And uh, we'll, we'll provide some linkage to that so folks can check it out because uh, we've already gone so long. I don't want to exhaust you here by going over all the... <laughs> All the uh, no, all the points, but when you know you make a really good point here. You know, a UFO is an unidentified flying object. Never forget that. So many people, oh, so many people make that mistake that that you know just because they see something in the sky, they make that leap to you know whatever they think UFOs are, and we just don't yeah. know. Yeah, and it's very important that we do not have the solution. It can be visitors from from Cetaritikuli. I don't know that. It can be hallucinations in some cases. It can be uh, other countries, uh, military air forces. It 
can be so many things, but I think you must be open to it can be every one of those things, not just one of them. Absolutely. So, you know, uh, you said you just had the big conference, and, uh, you know, what's next for you, Klaus Vaughn? What's next for UFO Sweden? Uh, I know you have uh, some magazines, some newsletters and stuff. Um, some of that may not be accessible to the folks here in the United States. Maybe some no. of it is. I don't know. I know there's some translations of some older issues that I was looking at earlier. But, you know, uh, I guess just talk a little bit about what you might have coming up next, even if it is uh, just in Swedish because, uh, you know, your work is, is pretty fascinating uh, from what I've discussed with you so far. So I'm interested in what, what you have, uh, you know, on the burners. Well, uh, the next big thing this year is uh – it's a field uh, trainee course we are holding after this summer. Uh, that's uh, one of the big events every year. And we usually we usually have uh, around 35 persons every year that we educate and try to make to very good ufologists. And uh, that will happen after the summer. That's always a nice thing to do because there are people coming there that you haven't not met before. And they are coming there because they want to be an investigator. Uh, that's fascinating. People really want to travel all around Sweden, pay a lot of money. Uh, well, not that much money, really, but <laughs> pay for it. Yeah. And have a nice time with us. <laughs> yeah, well, that's good that you're you're getting that kind of turnout still and, and that the uh, that the field is, is alive and well and doing well over there in Sweden. You know, is there anything uh, that you – want to say to the folks in Sweden that, that are, who happen to listen to this interview, you know, who are on the fence, they should check out UFO Sweden, of course, and, 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 and get involved, really, right? I mean, that's what we need, more people involved. Yes. I mean, every single person is so valuable because, uh, I mean, uh, we have 1,200 members, but uh, maybe just 80 of them are, are active. The other are reading the magazine. <clears throat> but active ones, every single person there is so valuable that uh, we need them. And people email me sometimes saying that, wow, I want to work uh, for you for Sweden. And we try to find uh, something for them to do. So uh, I'm very glad for everyone who, who sent an email or, or, or called me. Excellent, excellent. Well, Claus, uh, you know, I'm just completely blown away by this interview. I had a great time talking to you. I'm going to go on record here and just say this is one of the very best international ufology episodes that we've ever done and we've done probably close to 10 at this point so I mean it's quite an array of countries we've traveled to virtually to discuss the UFO phenomenon and, and, and just the stuff we covered here from Sweden was just amazing and I'm completely blown away by it really uh, gained a lot of respect for you and for your style of research and for your point of view on the UFO phenomenon you and I are very much uh, in line on the way this thing should be handled and the way this thing should be thought of, which is, you know, we just don't know the answers to this just yet. And too many people are saying they do know when they don't. And <laughs> I like yeah. that. And I'm very happy to see that, you know, someone of such a prominent position over there in Sweden is uh, looking at this, in, in my opinion, the correct way. So I have a lot of faith and excitement and hope for the Swedish UFO community with somebody like you, you know, uh, steering the ship. So I, I, I just can't put you over enough. Thank you so much for giving us so much time, nearly three hours. I know that uh, it's the afternoon for you, and you've given us just a huge chunk of your afternoon. I appreciate it, and I'm very, very excited about introducing you and, and bringing you to the American listeners of Been All of America Audio 
who, uh, you know, are going to discover so much about the Swedish UFO field. Thanks to you, Klaus Vaughn, and our friend Klaus Hager, our mutual friend Klaus Hager, who really did a lot of the legwork to uh, help us put this interview together. So, Klaus, thank you so much for coming on the show. If you ever need anything from me, don't hesitate to contact me, and uh, I'll be do whatever I can to help you out because uh, you got a friend in the Banal of America nation from all of us who uh, really appreciate you coming on the show. No, thanks a lot. It was a very well-informed interviewer, so I was, uh, I was so glad uh, talking to you. That does it for this week's edition of VOA Audio Season 4. Big, big, super huge thanks, of course, to Klaus Svahn for coming on the show and giving us just a tremendous amount of time out of his busy schedule. Hugely appreciated, and I really enjoyed the conversation quite a bit. You can find out more from Claus Spawn at the following websites, www.ufo.se slash English and www.afu.info. So pretty simple, ufo.se, click the English button, and www.afu.info for the archive for UFO research. Fantastic website there. Lots of great information on both of those sites, and a lot of it is in English, so I highly recommend folks go and check those out. And of course we got to give another big huge thanks here to Claus Hager for planting the seed for the Swedish ufology episode. Tremendous BOA audio listener, you've left your stamp on the season here, Claus Hager. Thank you so much my friend, looking forward to hearing your feedback on this episode. Speaking of feedback, it's time for BOA audio listener feedback and we've got two emails here this week so we're just gonna dive right in and get to reading. The first email comes from Doug in Pennsylvania, and here's what he has to say. Longtime listener since season one, and I picked up an extra copy of Ivan Sanderson's book, Invisible Residence, that you may have mentioned on the show at some point. I'd like to send you this gem for your library if you've never read it, along with a contribution via check. An oldie, yes, but definitely a goodie. Big fan of the show. Keep true to your vision and doing the show with your unique style, and you'll end up where you want to be even if you don't quite know where that may be at this point. Just listen to the latest show on Shadow People. Good stuff. Some of my favorites were Brad Steiger, Colm Kelleher, Jim Mars, pretty much every one, Jacques Vallée, George Knapp, and Marie Jones. Signed, Doug in Pennsylvania. I gotta put Doug over huge here. I did get the package yesterday with Invisible Residence and the check with the donation to BOA. Unbelievable guy, just amazing. I was blown away by how cool this edition of Invisible Residence was. I'm talking old school version of Invisible Residence. It's amazing. And an awesome donation via check. Doug, you are the man and really exemplify why I love the BOA Audio listening audience. Also, thank you for the list of your favorite episodes. We're going to be bringing back a lot of our classic guests coming up in Season 5, so I definitely want to hear from all the great BOA Audio listeners with your picks for favorite previous BOA Audio guests. Doug, you'll be happy to know Marie Jones will be on the program next week. Stay tuned for a little preview on that. And once again, huge thanks to Doug for going above and beyond what the BOA Audio listeners normally do. So thanks, Doug. I really appreciate it. Next email, I get burned a little bit, but we're going to read it anyway. Here's what our emailer John has to say. No hometown listed, just John. Would like to get off baseball. Lots of great sports shows out there, and this is not one of them. 
How about a deep review of what Eisenhower and Kennedy knew about UFOs, aliens, meetings, etc.? Second most interesting subject in this arena are USOs and experiences since World War II. Please spare us the baseball yada yada stuff. Thanks so much. Enjoy the show. When on topic, John, no hometown listed. Ouch, dude. I'm hurting, John. That hurt my feelings, that email. You know, the gist of it is, we put out 31 episodes per season. I enjoy taking one out of those 31 to do a little lighthearted episode that is the baseball special. I enjoy catching up with my friends and talking about something other than the esoteric at least once out of the 31 shows we have. I'll admit, it's a guilty pleasure for me, for the guests. I'm sure that a big portion of the audience doesn't even listen to the baseball show. But, you know, it's something I enjoy, and I hope that folks can uh, be tolerant of the baseball special as we try to provide you with 30 other episodes that are always pure esoteric discussion. Regarding the Eisenhower-Kennedy stuff, I think we're going to be touching on that in a few weeks with another UFO guest we have coming up, so stay tuned for that. And uh, the USO's experiences since World War II. Hopefully some of this stuff here in the Swedish ufology episode really wet your whistle, John. I think it was uh, within that realm of the topic you're suggesting here. But there's a good chance we'll do more USO World War II stuff in the weeks and months to come on BOA Audio. Definitely an arena of the UFO phenomenon that I'm interested in. So I appreciate the feedback. I always kind of expect an anti-baseball special email, but I haven't really gotten one in a while. So in a weird kind of way, I thank John for <laughs> writing in and, and crapping on the baseball special. It's cool, dude. I understand not everybody likes baseball, and a lot of people just are like, why are you doing this? But I enjoy baseball, and the baseball special guests enjoy baseball. And really, the whole point of that episode is to say there's life beyond the esoteric, and I hope that resonates with at least some of the BOA Audio listeners out there. Stay tuned, John. Plenty of on-topic esoteric discussion here on BOA Audio. Sorry to disappoint you with the baseball special. Try and give you a fair warning next year ahead of time when we have it scheduled. So there you go. Two emails. Doug in Pennsylvania sends me an amazing package with a book and a donation. John kind of gave me a little chuckle. I thought we were one of the really great sports shows out there. I'm confused now. I don't know what I'm doing here on this show anymore. But nonetheless, I really appreciate them both writing in. As you see, folks, I'll read critical emails. It doesn't matter to me. I want to hear from the great BOA Audio listeners, whether they're pro, con, or just have suggestions and other ways to contribute to the program. I want to hear from all you great folks who are out there listening with your thoughts on the show. How do you do that? That's simple. There's three methods. Let me roll through the list for you nice and quick. Write to boaaudio at hotmail.com. Go to banalofamerica.com, B-I-N-N-A-L-L of america.com, and click the contact button. And the final way is to join up at the official BOA forum, the usofe.com. Great group of folks there. The URL for that is www.theusofe.com. All one word. Those are the three methods to get in touch with me. Send me your emails. I'll read them, and if they're short or uh, meaty with something intriguing that I want to talk about here at the end of the show, we'll feature them on BOA Audio Listener Feedback. Gotten a ton of emails lately that are really super long that I just can't read on the show. So <laughs> try and send me something shorter if you want me to read it at the end of the show. I do respond 
to the super long emails, sometimes I end up writing back four or five paragraphs and it turns into quite an exchange. But nonetheless, you heard the three methods. Shoot me emails. I'll put them in the mailbag. We'll try and feature them here at the end of the show. You know what's next. It's the thanks portion of the show. You know them. You love them. They are the infamous and esteemed BOA staff. Leslie, Chiron, R. Lee, Joe V., Tina Senna, Rochelle Hawks, Richard Thomas, Lasha Siniuk, and A.M. Murphy. They contribute great stuff to Been All of America week in and week out. A lot of them are taking a little bit of time off here, sort of posting sporadically as the summertime kicks up. That's fine with me. I don't blame them. I want to enjoy the summertime as well. But we're trying to post at least two or three new columns at the website each week. And this past week, we did have three great ones. Let me talk about them a little bit. Leslie talks about the potential connection between extraterrestrials and demons. Definitely something very intriguing that we've talked about at times here on the program. The title of that column is, Do Demons Dream of Electric Spaceships? Check that one out up in all of America. Then, Lasha Senia posted her column, Field Notes, with the title, Where Does Your Naga Hide? All about her meeting with a highly realized Tibetan Lama and the wisdom that he shared with her. Check that one out. It's Lasha Seniuk's Field Notes at Benal of America. And finally, yesterday, or Monday, to those folks who are listening later in the week, we posted a column from Regan Lee, her Every Other Week column, Trickster's Realm. And this week she talked about a haunted hotel in Newport, Oregon. Definitely a spooky one there, and some place that I would love to check out sometime in the future. So those are the three columns we posted this past week at the website, Demons and Extraterrestrials via Leslie's Gray Matters, Highly Realized Tibetan Lamas via Lasha Seniuk's Field Notes, and A Haunted Hotel via Regan Lee's Trickster's Realm. As you can see, just a wide berth of esoteric discussion going on via the columnists at BOA. A lot of topics slip through the cracks here on the program, but the BOA staff is right there to examine these topics and discuss them on the website. You're missing out if you don't check out these really cool columns from the BOA staff. We say it week in and week out here on the program, but let's just do it one more time, my friends. If you're only listening to In All of America and you're not reading the columns at BOA, you're only getting half the story benallofamerica.com, B-I-N-N-A-L-L, ofamerica.com. Make it a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. Following the BOA plugs, you know what comes next. It is donation time. I'm taking off my hat, I'm passing it around the room, and I'm hoping folks will dig into their pockets and make some donations. You don't even need to say it again, my friends. I know the economic crisis is really freaking a lot of people out. And if you can't make a donation, that's totally cool, and I understand, and I don't hold it against you. We're all trying to weather this storm together. But to the folks who do have some disposable income and they want to share, anything they can drop into the BOA bucket is greatly appreciated. How do you do that? Simple. You go to banalofamerica.com and click the PayPal button. The folks at PayPal will walk you through the process. No donation is too small. And all donations go towards Been All of America and BOA Audio. And keeping the entire franchise here up and running and freely available for all of our great readers and listeners the world over. What if you're not a PayPal donor? What if you don't like the whole PayPal thing? Maybe you just want to send me a check like Doug in Pennsylvania did. That's simple. Shoot me an email. Let me know you want to send a check and I will uh, pass along my mailing address to you. 
and you can mail me a check. That's cool. I have no problem with that. Next week on the program, it is an absolute barn burner of an episode. We got double guests once again, Marie Jones and Larry Flaxman. They are the co-authors of the really intriguing and tremendous book, 1111, The Time Prompt Phenomenon. As you know, you're listening this far into the program, you're a hardcore BOA audio listener. Marie Jones and Larry Flaxman are both longtime friends of the show, and they're coming back once again for what is truly a raucous edition of BOA Audio. I'm telling you, my friends, the laughs and jokes and hilarity throughout this episode is just second to none. Plus, of course, there's tons of esoteric discussion. It's not just us sitting around laughing. We're going to be discussing, obviously, the 1111 phenomenon and the esoteric elements of numbers in general. Just a sampling of some of the numerically themed topics we're going to be talking about include the 23 Enigma, the odd popularity of 666 in China, and the remarkable number of religious connections with the number 3. We'll also cover the Pythagoreans, information theory, Littlewood's law about miracles and numbers, the strange Lincoln-Kennedy connections, synchronicities, and much, much more. I was blown away by this episode, just how much fun I had talking to two of my old-time friends, Marie Jones and Larry Flaxman. This dynamic duo let their hair down and really cut loose for what is a fast-paced, laughter-filled, and esoterically rich edition of BOA Audio that you do not want to miss. You can find out more from Larry and Marie at their website, paraexplorers.com. Pretty simple, all one word, paraexplorers.com. Check that out in the meantime until we post the episode next week. Marie Jones making her third appearance on BOA Audio. Larry Flaxman making his return to the program. 11.11, the time prompt phenomenon and the esoteric nature of numbers. Next week on BOA Audio. And on that note, we wrap it up here for the week. I am drained, folks. I want to give, of course, big thanks to Claus Spawn for coming on the show. This guy's a huge player in the Swedish ufology scene, and for him to take so much time out of his busy day to talk to us on BOA Audio is truly humbling. And, of course, Claus Hager, the man who made this whole thing happen. Big thanks to him, a tremendous BOA Audio listener. And much like Doug in Pennsylvania we discussed earlier, Claus Hager exemplifies the amazing nature of this BOA Audio listening audience. This program is as much mine as it is yours. Case in point, Claus Hager writes in, wants this thing for an episode, and we do it. That's how we roll, folks. This program is yours. It is mine. It is all of ours. And I can't thank you enough for being a part of the process and the program. Thank you for making BOA Audio part of your esoteric audio playlist. Until next time, this is Tim Banal. Thanking you for listening and signing off.